Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to podcastjuice.net. My name is Michael Dean, and this is the podcast on Prince. Joining me today is Mr. Big Sexy and Saxer. How are you? You know, doing well. Had to go to uh, down to the Bay Area yesterday for a court appearance and come back and it's raining. <laughs> right. That's all I do, though. Well, we have a special guest today. He's a gentleman who has been on the show a couple of times. Uh, one of our great classic episodes as well. He was featured on. I still get people to this day that, you know, find that episode and, you know, like just kind of blown away. So really appreciate him spending the time with us today. None other than Mr. Scotty Baldwin. Sir, how are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me on again. Man, thank you for coming on. Like, it's just uh, when, every time we talk, it's always just like the most sort of like intellectual, but stimulating, but and then fun uh, conversations. I would, one of the things people always say to me when they listen to you, when they, they hear the podcast, Mike, man, he's like a master of these voices. Like he obviously mm. really hears people and just can mimic the way they sound with such a clarity it's it's amazing i don't know i had to do that it was it was born out of necessity in the old days because <laughs> before i could do uh playback before i could do a virtual sound check at a live show where i could play back the night before performance which is exactly what's going to come out of the speakers that night i had to before that i had to just imitate singers so if i was working mm -hmm. with earth and a fire i used to try and sing like philip bailey or sing like prince or sing like maxwell and and that wasn't always easy, but it was effective because it helped me tune the PA. So it was really born on a necessity. Wow. So you, so you were uh, rocking those falsettos, huh? Oh, man. I, I used to do it when no one else was in there. I'd wait till lunch. But Prince would occasionally would hear that because he would, when he would be um, verbally chastising the monitor engineer du jour, you know, he would say, did you sing through these speakers? You know, did you, and, you know, did you hear Scotty singing through these speakers? And the guy would say, yeah. And he says, see, he can't really sing, but he, he going to try. You know? so he, at least I tried. I always tried. Wow. Well, for those who don't know, Scotty, can you give us a little background of your history with Prince and the times that you worked with Prince? I worked with him for a really long time. Most people that, that you interview or, or talk about with Prince, they had their time with Prince. It was a three-year stint or a five or a seven. And mine covered 26 years mm. um, from 1990 until right up until his death, a week before his death is the last time we corresponded. Um, it was through different eras and different bands. I started out as his drum technician. I was Michael Bland, the great drummer uh, for Prince for many years. I was brought on as his drum tech. And I did about five years there, 90 to 94, left I learned engineering, uh, learned how to mix for the crowd at a show. Um, Sheila E gave me my first chance. I left Prince and began my, I embarked on my career as a sound engineer. And I came back to Prince years later, I think around 2000, if I remember correctly. And, and then did on and off 16 years uh, more with Prince um, wow. in a mixing capacity. So I saw a lot of different bands mixed, I think, including Prince. I think I mixed seven or eight of his drummers. So, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of different band members. I wasn't there just for a small period. I think Kirk was probably the only one who did a longer amount of time at a regular interval than me. Okay. Wow. Um, so, and then, you know, and also aside from Prince, which is, you know, high watermark career achievement for a lot of people, you've also worked with some of the greats uh, in music as well. Like just give some of the names of other people. Oh, I can't, uh, I'd have to close my <laughs> eyes and do it, but it was, um, working backwards now it was since Prince's death, I worked with the revolution. They asked me to come on. I was a natural fit for them. 
um, a guy named Wang Lihom, who's big in China, not big in America, but he's an international superstar and in, in especially in Asia. Um, Madonna, Lady Gaga, Stevie Wonder, Earth, Wind and Fire, Black Eyed Peas, um, D'Angelo, Maxwell. I'm trying to cruise down the Donny Osmond. You bet. <laughs> we I sprinkle a little of that side in there too. So we're, I've gotten, uh, and there are more big ones I've forgotten, but um, learned a lot from all of them. Got, was wow. taught and got taught by a lot of them. And, you know, the other part that I find really great is that, you know, you're from the Minnesota, you know, Minneapolis, correct? Yes, sir. And, you know, sort of starting with, you know, through Prince and, and Michael B. And then just sort of that chain of all these people you just named. Like, I just find that fascinating that you were able to, you know, start that, find that lane and it, just all the places it took you. I mean, and then, you know, at the end of the day, you're working with one of the most highly regarded guys. And we'll talk about some of the things, you know, you learn from that. But I just find it fascinating that, you know, you follow the tree of it in all these different places yeah, that you one, navigate to. It's, it's one, once once sorry to cut you off, once uh, you learned uh, from Prince, as as is true with any genius, and I would consider Prince a musical genius. I don't think there's a lot of debate there. There could be, but I, I don't think so. Um once you learn from any genius, usually what they say is applicable to just about any facet of, especially creativity. So you can unplug the theories that he had about playing live or what he did in the studio, or, and you can plug it into architecture, art, painting. You can plug it into writing. You can plug it into, you know, uh, regular jobs, um, blue collar jobs. That ethic and what he teaches transcends the actual medium that, that in which it was taught. And that was, so I was able to take from Prince and I just plugged it into all these different artists. And I was usually asked then what I thought or what I could thought there could be improved because I showed a high aptitude. You make it with Prince, you can make it anywhere. Now you, you touched on something that was not necessarily the topic I was going to get into, but it's been something that's been bubbling in my mind to talk about later. And so I want to just jump into this real quick. You talked about sort of the legacy things that you sort of learned and some of these practices, you know, work ethics and things. But I wanted to ask you this, and, and I have an opinion, but I want your opinion. What do you think is, this is a broad question. What do you think Prince's legacy is? Now, I mean, what would, what, what do you want his legacy to be? Mm. The easy answer could say it's the music of this, but I feel like there's something maybe a little more deeper what his real legacy could mean to us in, in your opinion. Wow. That's a great question. Um, you always ask good questions. It's, um, it's deeper with Prince than just the music. Um, Prince is someone who, he's an artist who taught us about ourselves. Now, that's hard to do when you are a cryptic, private, um, dodgy sort of figure that keeps this mystery about him right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's more difficult to do when you are that type, but he succeeded. He was still that kind of mysterious figure, but he, in, through his music, he taught us about ourselves. That's why he is gripped so tightly by the people that love him is because he taught us how to deal with our sexuality, how to deal with our gender. He was doing that way before most other artists were. He was t teaching us about, um, how to respond to, uh, social 
issues as in his song Baltimore or, or things about Inside of the Times. That song is very, the, through his music, we were forced to ask questions about ourselves and it made us love him because we feel and felt like he understood us as listeners. So his legacy then, the answer to your question would be that he would, con- my, what my hope for him is that he would continue to challenge us through his art, which is difficult parenthetically because he's gone. So he's not continuing to release that art. Um, what's, what's down is down and what's not will never be. So, but I hope that we can continue to get to know ourselves better through his art. He's the catalyst for us getting to know ourselves. All right. And, and a big sex, I also, you know, want to ask you that too, sort of what is your thoughts on to you what his his legacy uh, should be and is excuse me to me his legacy is one of steadfast independence Mm. uh steadfast creativity steadfast supporting things with your heart and not necessarily with your mouth to gain public confidence. I remember the first time I had heard of the Marva Collins School. I'm like, who? And people were telling me, man, Prince has been behind this for years. And when a person, be it a celebrity, be it, you know, a regular guy off the street, the, the phrase, don't talk about it, be about it, really resonates with Prince. You know, because he wasn't in the media talking about well, this, 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 this. You just go, go ahead and do it. And if you ran into resistance, you deal with it. If you ran into ridicule, you deal with it. And that's something I try. I've tried for years to carry on into my professional life. When I decided decided to go to college way back when, I knew I was going to get laughed at. I knew this, and I did get laughed at. But who's laughing now? So I just you learn to do your thing because you know in your heart that it's right and damn what everybody else thinks you just got to go do your Mm. thing and eventually they'll either get on board or they'll get out of the way but you still have to do your thing and a lot of that comes from prince yeah go ahead man that i mean that's really well said and i can prove that is a, a super good point uh, big sexy and i can prove it by one example with prince you know i don't like to get into too many anecdotes people like hearing them but i i, I bring them up because they are important in the way he taught um he and i were arguing about the house sound in 2004 and i thought it was good and he heard otherwise he heard it was either not loud enough or he wanted more of his vocal or you know it was there was something going on and he couldn't put his finger on it and he had, he was giving me a really rough time about it And I had a lot of pressure on me from the promoter, from the fans, from Prince, from the band, from, you know, there was a lot of, because it was a $120 million tour. Um, We were talking and I said, I knew using an example back to him would be the way to get him. And I said, listen, man, just like James Brown, all I'm asking you to to do is let me get up and do my thing. (laughs) And there was a pregnant pause where he just looked down, he had his fingers on it by his mouth and he just looked up and said, we're straight. That's all he said. We're straight. And then he looked at the door and I knew that was my time to leave. And I walked out. I think it, you know, I, I don't think it, it, it made an impact. He listened to me asking as an artist, I was asking for the creative means necessary to do what I do. He was asking me to do what I do. And I was unlike other sound men that he had sound engineers that he had where I just did what I was told to do. I, he gave me a lot of 
freedom, you know, and, and, um, responsibility. And I was asking for that freedom back. I felt like it was being taken from me and I fought for it. And he listened to me and I used an example of James Brown asking to let him do his own thing. And he listened and he heard, and then he responded. And we never had a problem for the rest of my career with him after that. Is it like he, when you say, you, you said that, what you said about James Brown, was that, is it something because he could relate to, you know, sort of the cultural thing you were using an example or did he I, like get you wanted to do he understand what you meant what you're trying to say to him it it was a it was sort of a um i don't i don't think it was a, a a low resolution way for me to bring it up to him by saying hey you'll identify with this guy he's a singer too and you like him right. that wasn't my intention it's just the first thing i thought of because i the phrase in my mind came up like i just want to do my thing this is what I do. You can't do what I do. We, we've tried this. You've tried engineering by yourself from the stage. It doesn't work. So just let me do my thing. And, and so I quickly turned it around and said, said what I said about James Brown's quote. And he clearly listened and, and let me do it. And from then on, we never had an issue. As a matter of fact, I don't remember having an issue ever after that at all. I, I was never called, called to the carpet to have to explain myself in any circumstance. So getting back to what big sexies to his point that if you show that you have a reason for, for acquiring and, and maintaining your independence, he celebrated independence in people. And, you know, now I, I actually agree with, um, I liked my answer, but I like big sexies better. He was <laughs> trying to find independence in people and have you constantly remain who you are and make proclamatory statements on who you are. Hmm. And, okay. sh and show people by example. And I, I might deviate just a slight from that, but just to give my a take on it, and I'm coming from a place, I guess it really all comes down to, to where we are at a particular time when we say these things. But I'm coming at it from a point of, you know, seeing sort of people, you know, have some death in the family recently and sort of seeing the effects of that on the rest of the family and friends. And it made me start to think, I was like, okay, Prince isn't here. And I know us as fans, you know, of course we love the music and then some of the stuff we're talking about today that, you know, the way that he attacked or approached things in his life, you know, staying on target and being relentless to be the best. And, you know, that whole work ethic and mindset. And I always, sometimes I wonder, like for me, I'm like, what, would, what do I take away from Prince? On a, on a legacy level, you know, re, I'm not even concerned with the music. That's just, just a part of my being that is always there. But I, almost, I also feel like, too, I, I, I wonder sometimes of, you know, the, uh, the, the, the distant cousin of Prince or, you know, the younger kids in his family that may or may not have got a chance to meet him, but obviously know the importance of you know, Uncle Prince or Cousin Prince in their family and the reverence that his family members would speak uh, about him. And obviously they see, you know, the world's response to him. And I wonder, like, what did they, uh, how does he, how will he affect them? You know what I mean? And, and the, what's the legacy to, to that person? Uh, and of course, you know, Paisley Park is the building, um, and all of the music and the tapes and all that. But I was wondering, I was like, man, Prince couldn't take any of that stuff with him. Like, he's not going to, 
take all the clothes and all that stuff. He's not here. That stuff is there. Does, how much does that stuff mean? And what does it mean to his long-lasting legacy? And I, I feel like, you know what? It almost doesn't matter to me, like, all, you know, the, the least to Paisley Park. Of course, I wanted to continue and blah, blah, blah. But is that what Prince means to me? Like, is that the legacy it would mean to me? No, I, it, it means exactly what you guys were saying earlier. It means to me, I look at this man and I'm like, whoa, I'm so curious of why he had the mindset he did. You know, what was his dad's legacy to him? What did, what did the things that did and didn't happen with his family caused him to think and do what he did and how that, you know, affects all these other people around the world. And I think the same way with Prince, the things that he did and the things he may not have done, how is that going to affect us? You know, what are things we can learn from that? Um, and that's why I really started thinking like, what is he really, why do I so much like Prince? What do I learn from Prince? And I'm not learning. I don't think I'm going to learn that. Yeah. I want to be the best musician or whatever. I think I'm going to learn how, like you said, you know, working like a job is essentially sort of coming from that, but also take that same energy that Prince had to things and apply that to my kids, like apply that to my family. So when I move on, I'm not just leaving them stuff, but I'm leaving them real core values that they can take with them. Uh, so, and the value of that is always going to be higher, whether or not the house I leave them or the car I leave them may diminish in value. That essence of a, that man or what he did, that's to me would be like the legacy. Like in my opinion, I started thinking of things like that. And, and so I just went down that because some of the things you were saying, Scotty sort of made me want to jump into that. But, you know, I don't know. It's, I, I, sometimes I see out there in the, Prince community, you know, uh, and I'm speaking from a fan's perspective. Sometimes I think we get caught up in, you know, he doesn't want, he didn't want this. And I mean, that's a legitimate thing to get into, but I guess sometimes I'm like, well, uh, we don't know what he, what he wanted or not. Some of, some of them people do, but what did he leave for us? What can we hold on to regardless of whatever they do? Right. Um, we can always go look back at his actions. And you know the the methods of of things and and so let me get off my soapbox on that, um, but wanted to speak on that. But um, let's shift gears slightly. With that said, and I'm glad we have you here, Scotty, because I wanted to ask you about Paisley Park. There's always a lot of uh, new things going on there, and there were some new things that hit the press over the last week uh, in regards to some changes that are going mm -hmm. on there and things that they may have planned. And I know one of the big talking points that I see a lot of people talking about um, is that you, one, you can bring your cell phones into mm -hmm. the, at least the soundstage area and take pictures and things of that nature. And I'm just curious if you have an opinion, Scotty, that you, if you want to share, what do you, what's your takeaway? What do you think about that? Well, it, it, it's, we can, we can play the game of what would he do? Right. But it doesn't serve anyone. It doesn't serve him. And it doesn't serve his legacy. Um, I think they have leadership there now that understands that you can't be the rock in the way of the river because 
as I've used, used the example before, the river at first will go around you, which feels quite quaint to be surrounded by a river. But then at some point it's going to go usurp you and go over top of you. And then you cease to exist and you're, you're gone. You're part of the river now. And I think this leadership there now understands the people in place understand that, um, social media is clearly a big deal and we need to have that utilized in order to get the message out and continue the legacy and continue people coming in and, and seeing what this artist did. And so, um, it's a natural evolution and, um, doesn't require a revolution, just an evolution. They're just evolving a bit. And it's not, I don't look at it as a relaxation of the rules. I think it's smart. I think from day one, they could have let cameras and cell phones be in there and it would have been just fine. Um, he's not going to show up. Uh, so you might as well share it with the world and let people, let people, um, tweet and Instagram and, and TikTok, you know, whatever they, whatever they use, you want to get the message out and, um, uh, just to, to further things along, to make things move along. I think that it's, um, it is, it's, it's being done better now. And, and I think they've found their legs through these different changing hands over the past four years and, and it will continue to get better. And they, as they unearth things, they've got good people running the, um, um, running the archive now. Um, Mitch is, is great. He's, knows what he's doing and he knows the artist and, and they're going to be able to, to find their way. And they, they seem more amenable to finding their way with relaxed measures in so, in so much as letting people help get the word out for them. They don't have to do mm -hmm. it all themselves. I think they're, those are good changes. Alcohol, uh, uh, fish, you could have meat in there. To me, it doesn't, none of that matters anymore because, um, we're not in his private a residence anymore. This is all a, a, it's a private facility, but it's, it's become everyone's facility. Um, if I may say it that way, um, we respected all of us who worked there for a long time, respected his desire to have certain things not go on in there. Uh, and that was done because we, it was a rule, first of all, and there was a fear factor involved there where you didn't want to be found out trying to do something, but also Ultimately, I think there are a lot of us who just respected his wishes. It's, it's his house. I mean, it was, it was his residence. You, you're a guest in this residence. And there were certainly, as Dave Hampton liked to point, point out, there were certain parts of the facility that were for us who worked there. And then there were certain parts that were looked at as just his residence. So we all sort of knew that. But now it's all become one thing. I would like it to become like what he said it was in the song, which is a place where people come to share. Mm -hmm. And I think it's becoming that more, and it's good to see that direction, um, taking place. Yeah. You made some great points. You know, the, the other side, you know, I, I know people will be like, well, like you said, that was his wishes or, you know, he was against the, the phones or alcohol at certain times, but I don't know. It's an interesting thing because again, he's not here. Is, is it being disrespectful? I think that's sort of the kind people sort of go back and forth with, you know, it was his house. So you respect that person's wishes, but you know, it's, it's also a business there, right? Like it's a business that needs to survive in right. rural Minnesota. Right. So if you were in, if you were on fifth Avenue in, in New York, maybe you could hold tight to some of these things that he had there, but you've got to attract people. It is a business. You know, and, um, 
And after all, he was true. He, he was truly a contrarian. You know, he was somebody who would say one thing, do another, and then confound people around him. Oh, uh, what? And so they were looked at, as, you know, to be contrarians as well. And there were a lot of do as I say, not as I do. And there were lessons in, in that as well. But so you, you kind of just have to, you have to do it at some point. We have to do it without his guidance and, and just do what we think is best. Not we, I say we, as if I'm involved, but people have to do what they think is best to further his legacy because it's a long ways out there in the cold. It's, it's not close to Minneapolis. You have to make the journey to get out there and you have to make it worth it for people to make the journey. Uh, what, what was the last, uh, I may know the answer, but what was the last project you worked there at, at Paisley Park? If you can answer that question. Um, the last thing I did, I think was the, unless I remember incorrectly, it was that Justin Timberlake had a, um, album oh, okay. release party there right. and the revolution played at that. Um, I didn't play at the last one the revolution did. I was in China at the time, but, um, um, yeah, I, I, I think I had done one, um, celebration, uh, with the revolution there since his death. That was the first time I was back. And the second one was the Timberlake party. All right. That was like Super Bowl weekend or something. I think, is that what it was? It was I think it was a, it seemed like over a year ago, right? Yeah. I it was thought, a while back. Yeah. It was, I remember, I remember it was a big deal at the time. Um, yeah. And that was a big deal because that was the first time officially that alcohol was let in the place. Right. Okay. So if you got to change with the times and you have to, um, no one should feel like it's a, um, a disrespect. It's, it's simply changing with the times. Here's someone who changed with the times himself. Not only did he change with the times, he, he was dictatorial. He, he dictated how some of us changed in our social means, our, our social norms changed. Uh, so he made us think about ourselves. So he was, um, he was big into change. He, cha he, he changed a lot over his career. So why wouldn't the people that are doing that for him do the same thing? If you can answer this in terms of like other uh, people such as yourself who have worked for Prince and who worked, you know, at Paisley Park a lot and may or may not necessarily be involved now, are you or those that can remain nameless, are they sort of happy with the progression of the studio and the building, the way things are sort of coming, coming along? I don't talk to many people. Um, a few, but not many who had a regular occurrence there at Paisley Park in their life. Um, I don't keep up with the people who were there. Um, but my, and I would have to, the people that I, with whom I do speak on that, on that issue, it's not often about that. And I think all of us understand there's a natural progression to having it unfold. And uh, it's a difficult task. The people that are there, the new, um, leader of the facility is, um, uh, they've got a, a, a challenge on their hands because they, it, you can, you, you, you have to, it's something that, that I think everybody of a creative mind should experience that place. Um, but it, you have to put butts in seats, as they say in the airline industry, you got to get the butts in the seats. So you have to get people out there. And, and we used to know that he might show up. Mm -hmm. We used to know that he might perform. We used to know he might just stand up in the atrium on the second floor and watch all of us as we danced. You know, I know that feeling of fans. Um, but I, I, I'm, they have to do that without him. So I'm not sure what people with whom I worked or people there, 
I, I speak to Dave, I speak with Dave Hampton on that regularly, but I'll let him speak for himself about what he, he would have a lot more to say about, about the, uh, what's being done with the f- facility now, but I think they're doing everything they can do. And I think they're doing a, a good job. All right. All right. Um, also wanted to ask you about the upcoming release of, uh, with a one night alone, uh, project and the rainbow children and the the one night alone live album which i know that you were working with prince during that time um now they're re-releasing these and i'm curious like what are your thoughts on these sort of being available again well i'm, I'm excited about it because um usually when people do what i do for a living you're the work disappears in the air at the concert that that night you know, it's mm-hmm. the energy goes into the air and then I just grab my backpack and I leave and I don't, can't really hold what I do. But, uh, Prince was a meticulous, uh, archivist and as was I. So I always did a good job of making sure everything I did for him, whether it was a, um, uh, an after show, uh, the main show, I always had everything meticulously labeled and recorded in a digital format and with overlap so that I didn't miss any moments. And I would hand all that in and Dave Hampton, luckily, archived it, all the work that I was doing and sent it back when I sent it back. So, um, it's, it's no, um, surprise to me that one night, it it actually was a surprise that one night alone live, the box set was going to come out at all. He, Prince invited me into the studio. I don't have to go that far into the story, but I got invited to come out and listen to something with Prince. And so I showed up and he was in listening to my front of house mix and he, we listened for a little bit and then he turned it down and said, I'm going to release this as a record. And he did, he released a a three disc box set. It was the full two and a half hour concert. And then it was all these after shows, you know, different recordings from the after shows. And that was enough of a, um, feather in my cap, but to also let me write the, um, ask me to write liner notes for the record was exciting. And I was excited to hear recently from a colleague that works out with the estate on the, um, on the, uh, recording releases that, the my liner notes uh, i think sam jennings did the artwork for it and they're they're going to be released on the on the vinyl version as well which is good because that's that's all part of the artistic statement i hope that's true because that's the every all the art in there was part of prince's artistic statement for that record having the fans have quotes and having all the band members and having me as a responsible part of it who basically was responsible for the recording of it all um I'm, I'm glad that's, that's coming out. It'll be, I'll love to hold it in my hands. Cause it's, it's one thing to stream, but we can't hold anything in our hands when we stream <laughs> something. Right. Mm-hmm. But to people who are old enough to remember record albums and even CDs, you got to hold something and read liner notes and it was exciting. And, um, and now you get to do that again with the vinyl and I can look at a big six, I heard it's six album box set of the one night wow. alone and the after shows. And I get to hold that and know that I was responsible for all of that just wow. coming right through my right index finger and my ears. And, and that's a big thing for a, an artist like Prince. I'm very proud and honored to be part of that. And I think it's good that they're releasing that stuff. Um, because vinyl is, is, um, it's really not just a niche thing. It's, it's really a heritage. It's heritage of putting needle to wax and, and f- having a physical relationship with the material mm-hmm. where you can see the grooves and see it and feel the pops. And I think all of that is important. And, um, they did it. They definitely did it the right way. The 90, 1999 box set is gorgeous. Yeah. And, and, um, the re-release on vinyl. So I'm excited to see that stuff come out and I think it's, it's good. They'll get around to everything. I think they're very smart in the way they're unfolding this stuff. 
Um, did you also do the, the the sound for the was it a Vegas concert? And I think they're putting the concert out too. That was a video at the DVD at the time. Oh, that's right. The um, the so the things for, just to get on the record, the things for which I was responsible, and my front of house. Uh, two track mix was released was the one night alone box set, which was two discs. And then the one disc of after shows, the in ain't over after shows that's sometimes blown out as a separate release. Um, the live from Las Vegas DVD, um, which was, um, uh, the Aladdin, I think the Aladdin live yeah. at the Aladdin. Yeah. That's right. And that was, um, Prince told me in the dressing room right before the show, he said, this is it no second takes. This is it. And I said, yeah, I said, uh, let's, let's do it. I, I said something like, he said, we're going for recording tonight. And I said, Hey man, I'm, I'm shooting for a recording every night. And he was, <laughs> yes. um, so that was fearless of all of us. And, um, that, that was good. The claps a little too loud on that DVD, I'll admit, <laughs> but, um, uh, that's all right. We can uh, just turn it down a little. Um, so, um, and then also the, um, C note, something I was, uh, uh, an, an album of which I was unaware, uh, until about five years ago where somebody said, no, that's all your sound checks, the sound checks we did. Oh, wow. And he's right. C note standard for, stood for, um, oh boy. who Copenhagen, oh. uh, N Nagoya, yeah. Osaka, Tokyo. I'm going to get this. And the letter E, I can't remember what, city that was but you'd have to look it up but so c-n-o-t-e so he called it c-note and put a hundred dollar bill on the on the cover it's really a genius move for prince and that was all sound checks and i'm sure you know at some point they'll release that on vinyl as well that's good i appreciate that nice man so you, this is some you guys you got some uh, calling cards some uh yeah some nice stuff coming out, man. But it, it also, it also is a, it, it's great. It's good enough for me. And I appreciate it because Prince and I, we liked each other and he liked showing that if you do it his way and I sort of imbibed his way that you can come up with stuff. It's always coming out of people and you can do it with whatever you have. Um, but also it's a really big statement about Prince. He was unafraid to do things against convention. You know, these things, it's way easier to multi-track everything and go back in the studio and spend six months remixing live things and replacing mistakes and, you know, turning down claps when they're a little too loud on the DVD, right? <laughs> but, but he didn't do that. He, um, he, he was fearless and he, um, I always appreciated that about him and I look for it as a trait in artists um, with whom I'm potentially going to work. I want to see how fearless they are. And, um, cause you want to be challenged and you want to challenge at the same time. So it's really, uh, it was really uh, brave of uh, him to release all that stuff. And, and you were just putting in reference in my mind, you were the doing front of house sound on the, I don't know if it was called the rainbow children tour, but the tour for that album. Is that the one yeah, that, that was, that was one, one night, night alone. alone. So were you here, were you doing that when they came, <clears throat> they came to Seattle at the Paramount, excuse me. Were you doing the sound at that? Do you remember? Yes, I'm sure I was. Oh, man. <clears throat> I'm sure I've told this to me and time. That was my favorite show of all time. Like, it was great to go to the sound check and everything. I, yeah. He, he, he broke new ground on that. He let, wasn't that the, was that the tour? I think that, yeah, that was a tour where the, the fan club got to sit up yeah. front. Yep. Yeah, man. Now, now that's easy to do now because you just have a team of people and you go, hey, I want the fan club to sit up front and three people go running off with Starbucks cups and cell phones. <laughs> And they were they work it out. But Prince did everything boots on the ground. 
So it was probably one of us or, or whomever was his mm. um, right-hand person at the time. And they just put it together and made it happen. So you have to count up how many fans are going to come, save that many seats in the front several rows. And then the, the people who just purchase without being part of the fan club, they can start at row six or something or row 10 or whatever it is. Okay. Yeah, so was... That, that was, and that creates a lot of, what does it do? It creates a lot of energy up front. Okay. Right. Then you have to look through all this energy to enjoy the show. So nobody's sitting in the first three rows with their hands folded. Right. Right. You get to look through the most rabid fans. So that's why that tour was so, it was a beautiful tour. He didn't do all of his hits on that tour, but I, in ways there are a lot of people that it's their diehard favorite part of his career was one night alone was rainbow children, the one night alone mm -hmm. tour. Cause it was so different. Yeah. I mean, he, it was just almost to me, it was like, he just stepped up his game on a whole nother level yeah. that I didn't even anticipate. And I was just like, and you know, 11 of the musicians he had with them. It was crazy. It was yeah. crazy. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I wish I'd have known you at that point. <laughs> yeah. But it's a small world. Um, I, I have to, I have to say it's been really one of the great things that's come out of the last four years is that anytime I'm doing a revolution show, it's actually happened on other shows that I've done that weren't, we're with other artists in the last couple of years, people will come up and say, Hey, I just want to th say thank you mm -hmm. for all the work that you've done for my favorite artist. And, um, and it's really been gratifying to hear from people who extend themselves out to say thank you to a, someone in a technical support role, mm -hmm. but that they were a, resp a responsible part of their enjoyment. So I, I, that's been one of the best things that's come out of this. I can imagine, man. I mean, and then, you know, even from and from just the other side of it in your profession, and I think we've talked about it before, just the a level of respect that I'm sure other musicians and artists have for you because of who you've worked with, right? And the level that mm -hmm. you had to meet, uh, and then what you obviously bring to the table. When somebody says, "Oh, Scotty, he worked for Prince," I'm sure that's like, "Oh, okay, well, shoot." Yeah, that's that All is right. <laughs> yeah, because you already know how high that mountain is, right? Yeah. Oh, I what what mountain do you climb? You know, but if you say, "Oh," Everest. I've summited Everest several times and they say, Oh, because you already know what you're dealing with. And so it's, um, it's, it's, um, yeah, that is that he, he was the Mount Rushmore. He was the, he was the, excuse me, he was the Mount Everest of, uh, of artists for, for difficulty with whom to work, but also <laughs> through that difficulty was, you know, you're above the clouds then. So you, when you get good at something, everything else is easy. And then the challenge becomes how to keep are self-challenged because we're used to fighting prize fighters, mm -hmm. right? And then when you start to go into the ring with people who aren't quite as savvy, it's how do you keep yourself entertained and keep yourself challenged? That becomes the real challenge for, for people that execute at a high level, musicians and technicians alike. Okay. So this brings us to one of the main reasons, you know, we uh, started to talk today, what we wanted to talk about, and you had a great sort of, tagline for this and you were, you were teaching by showing yes and for me i want to i'm going to frame this uh in things the ways that i can think of so i'm a star wars fan so i'm going to say that you are uh you've been introduced to yoda yeah. <laughs> this is the Empire Strikes Back Yoda. He's, I don't know if y'all remember he seemed to be a yoda at that point was a little more like not no bullshit Yep. Uh, he, he didn't really know what to make of Luke. Actually, he was like, you know what? I don't think you really ready. Um, and I don't know Prince, but I can imagine that he definitely has an idea of what, what the expectations are 
and wants to see if you can flourish and, and exceed that and do your thing. So with that said, like you coming into working for Prince and what were some of the things we can start with, you know, that would be a teaching by showing example, you know, what was sort of his uh, attitude toward you or somebody okay this is your job I, i'm not gonna tell you what what you're supposed you were supposed to know do your job you know i think like it seemed like to me he would not have a lot of patience it's like yo let's get going but i could be wrong so i'm asking you to sort of he well what he did was he anyone who is sort of invited into that world um to work with him there was and remember i saw I worked with Prince through many, over 26 years, there are many different phases of not only his career, but just different times of his life, different where he was going through different personal uh, ups and downs and, and as, as we all do. So I saw a many different times in his life where, where he, we were working together. Um, and through those, what he would do generally is you'd sort of be invited in and then he would sort of engage in some tutelage right away. He would teach a little bit and then he would sort of back off. This is my own experience with it. He would back off and then judge. He would let someone show of what they were capable. And then he would sort of make his determination, a decision on how, how long he had a great gut and he would just figure how long he would know how long you were going to work with him just by your, showing him your aptitude. So he would sort of start you out by saying, you know, we want it to, I want it to sound like this and I want to do this. And then I would say, okay. And I imbibe that vision. Um, and then I would start to do it. And then he would go into a song in rehearsal. I remember the first day or two of rehearsal, I think he did pop life. And I already had written down what that echo is on that song. I had it ready to go. And so by the time he got to that first line, I already had the, the echo, the pop up, that echo on it. And I had it loud and it was in, in the monitors and in the house. And I remember him smiling and nodding as he was started singing because he knew here's a guy who right there, that proved that I knew the material. Mm -hmm. I was unafraid to engage in it and just hit the throttle and take off. And it showed I was willing to accept more. So I, I was ready and it's, it, it's, it's that first response. He would, he would watch people and he would see what they had as far as how to be taught and teachability from themselves and how much they were willing to put themselves out there. And then he would respond from that. So I think he saw in people, my guess is that he saw in people the whole future of what their working relationship was going to be just based on how they reacted that, from the very first. first. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. He well, certainly saw that in Dave Hampton. I introduced Prince to Dave Hampton in the end of 2002 after Prince asked for a recommendation of someone to come in and get the studios up to, to um, uh, a current condition in the industry. And I, I flew Dave in a couple of days later and within the first five minutes, Dave walked in, shook Prince's hand um, and said, listen, I understand that I wouldn't be allowed to take photos but it's my policy to have a notebook and pen. And I like to take copious notes mm. on what the things you're saying. So will you allow me to do that? And Prince nodded. 
And then Prince turned around and took off. And I remember thinking right there, he's in. Like that somebody who's willing to say to someone, I am going to listen to what you say and I'm going to write down what you're saying because it's important. That, that says everything it needs to to Prince. And I think his decision to keep Dave uh, under his regular employee for seven years was made that moment. Well, what, what would be, what's an example of doing something and it not, you know, not lasting or what would be a thing that would be a turnoff? Well, at least in your opinion, what you thought may have been turned off. Well, it's, it's a little unfair, but it would be, you would have to mind read. You would have to know what he was going to say already. And if someone didn't, if someone would, um, if the drum tech would be up there and Prince would say, Hey, go around the drums. And they would, they would hit the kick and he would say snare. And then the drum tech had hit the snare and Prince would cover, it, cover his ears, stand up and do a little pimp walk around in a circle and shake <laughs> his heads, shake his head and hold his ears. If you didn't know what he meant, mm. you already were gone. You just didn't know it. Wow. And quite often in the uh, sound checks, I got so good at reading all those tells that he would be sitting in the seat somewhere with his gun mic and he would say, John, go around the, you know, kick and snare and he'd hit kick and snare and Prince would just turn to me and nod. And then he'd say, okay, now go around the toms. And John would go like that. And Prince would look at me and make a kind of mm, face like that. And I'd say, I'd say, I'd cut in and say, John, hit, hit Tom two for me. And he'd hit it and Prince would nod at me. And then I'd say, hit Tom three. And he'd hit it and Prince would go, ooh, make that, ooh, stinky face. And I'd say, can you, can you guys tune that down? That's, that's way too high. That's actually higher than the second time. Right? So you knew he was, you had to get good at, sign, at reading those signs really quickly. And know if he shook his head, ooh, you had to know what. And then I would say, hold on, hold on. Okay, try it again. He'd hit the snare again. He'd go, yep. Too boxy, too much high end, wow. too papery. You had to know that. And people who are really good, the people that survived there a long time, especially art directors, that was a for for uh, Sam and and Steve Park and Afshin and and um, Julie a long time ago and Stacia and they had to they had to know they had to mind read they had mm -hmm. to know what he wanted before he called it. And um, when you got good at that, man, you you felt like you could take over the world. Wow. Now. I want to paint a picture because you just said something. I know uh, for fans, we've seen footage. Um, I know like there was the love sexy footage and you see Prince sitting and it looks like the stands or the bleachers or something. And he's got the mic in his hand and you can hear either it's playback or it's the actual band playing. And just as you described, he'll like put his hand up. All of a sudden the music will stop and then he'll be like, I couldn't make out what he's saying, but I assume based on what you're saying, he was given instructions on how to EQ certain instruments or sounds. And, and what I wanted, if you could explain to us, cause this is stuff we never really get to hear. Um, how do you retain that? Are you like writing these things down? And then there's sort of like this master notes for the mix or is it programmed into something? How does that process work? And how long well, is that process too? Um, I, well, I got it. I got the, I understood how his process worked really quickly. So that wasn't an issue. And I always had a pen and paper, a notebook and pen near me all the time. So I could take notes and I never did it on a phone, even late in his career on the piano tour. Um, I never did it on an iPad or on a phone because it looks like you're not paying attention when you're on mm -hmm. an iPad or a phone. So I always do it analog. That That's a sure sign to any walk of life that if someone's 
um, saying something, you should, and they're in a position of teaching, you always have a pen and paper next to you because it's showing them a subconscious cognitive that you are willing to write down what you say because you mm -hmm. feel what they say is important. And prints always, so I always tell that when I'm either when I'm consulting or, or teaching classes or giving lessons or something that I, I'll say, how many people have notebooks in front of them? And two hands will go up and I say, well, we, we need to change that. And if not for me, for the next person that comes in and speaks, because if it's something worth hearing, it's worth writing down. And once we write it down, we commit it to memory. Um, but, but as far as seeing those clips, what Prince was doing is he, he was always refining. Now, you know, he always had tight bands. Uh, the bands were tight. Uh, the sound was tight. Um, I can speak for when I was there. So what he would be doing is making refinements and adjustments. Mm -hmm. And he was so good. He did better than any artist I've, with whom I've ever worked is he knew how to play to each venue. So he knew if it was a, if it was a, um, uh, an after show, a club, he could play as loose as he wanted to. The sound could be loose. He could be a lot of sloppy hi-hat and a lot of ch He could do songs and he could do Bambi in a club because it, it translated. It was dirty and sweaty and sexy. And he knew how to write a set list for a club versus a set list for a, an arena and a set list for a stadium. And he just had the feel. He had that feel. And um, what he was doing there is making refinements. So he would stop on the one, bang, the band would stop. And then he'd say on that chorus, make sure it's bright, you know, or he would tell the keyboard player, let's move it up, up an octave there. So you're not competing with my vocal. Cause that's the same octave I'm singing that vocal part in. So let's move those apart so that they don't conflict. He was a master arranger. And again, all these things I'm saying he did, I could plug them all into anything, any other artistic endeavor and they work. He was a master arranger. He knew about balance. He knew about space. He knew about energy. And he, um, what he was doing is saying, I, there's one clip that someone sent me um, anonymously. I got a clip that was some, I think it was a CNN interview or headline news or something where it showed Prince turning to me and with his mic in his hand going, brah, brah. and I know it was Let's Go Crazy because he was talking about the little side stick part in the end of the loop in let's go crazy. Brah, brah. Mm. And what he was saying was make sure that's turned up. Wow. Um, and so he was, he was detailed down to the, the smallest degree. And what did, what he want change on a night to night basis? Absolutely. He wasn't always consistent in what he wanted. And that was frustrating for some people, but, um, but he generally, you could, <laughs> his, even his inconsistencies, uh, and in what he wanted were pretty consistent. They changed pretty consistently. Right. So I could always sort of know what was coming in. He just had to have a, an A and a B plan. And the bands were so good that we could take any of those little physical changes that he did in, uh, before a show and, and assess, um, amass those into what we were doing really quickly. And, and would he remember those changes if they had not been made during the show? Like, or, you know what I mean? Like he wasn't just saying something a couple hours earlier in a rehearsal and then it's, if, if it, if he missed it, did he remember that? I, I've, I've said this before. He never missed a cue. I've, ne I don't remember him ever missing a cue. There was one in particular and people can listen because I believe it's on, I, it's been a long time since I listened to one night alone live. Um, there's somewhere in that show, uh, Oh, I know. I, I, I'm here it now in my head. It's how come you don't call me anymore? And I'll have to go back and listen. And hopefully now people can just jump on to, to their favorite 
streaming service and listen to the One Night Alone Live box set version of How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore. I think it's on there. Where he wanted to end a phrase, right? And he wanted to scream right on that hit and have me do an echo and have the echo keep going until he stopped with his hand. And it had to go on for about 20 seconds. The first night we tried it, he screamed when the band did their hit. So when I did the echo of his vocal, I, I got a lot of band in there too. You heard John going, psst, psst, psst. you know, there was a lot of, it was kind of messy. I went to him the next day before we, after sound check, but before the show. And I said, Hey, you know what, man, I forgot to ask you, can you do the scream after the hit so I can grab a clean scream of yours? And he said, yep, cool. He nodded. And I thought, Ooh, he didn't look at me or didn't really acknowledge it more than a quick little nod. And the reason that it was important to me, because if I missed grabbing it on that hit, right. And he did it on the hit as he did the night before I wouldn't grab the scream. So he, so I took a chance and he went, I let it go. And he went, and ow, ow, ow. And I grabbed it like that. He didn't, not only did he, he nailed it perfectly and he never forgot. He never made a mistake like that. Now, now he missed, he, he forgot lyrics over the years, but if somebody writes, you know, the, the voluminous, I mean, the, the, the volume of lyrics that he wrote right. in his career, that's, that's expected of anyone. And everyone uses, um, um, confidence monitors. Now they have the lyrics in a fake monitor on stage. Confidence fake, monitors. I confidence like monitor, yeah. So they, um, which is a fancy way of saying teleprompter. Right. So you, they have teleprompters in, in a fake floor monitor. Um, uh, so Prince forgot lyrics over the years, but he would cover it very, very well. And he just knew how to get out of not remembering things like that. But he, as far as being on his mark and hitting all his marks and vocally performing, and there was no equal, he simply had no equal. He was light years ahead of people as far as that. When you work with other artists, I'm sorry, cut you real quick. When no, you no, work no, with, that was. When you work with other artists, do they have that level in terms of this, you know, the, the sound check prep and things? And, and do they sit out there in the seat and go through most most of them don't sit in the seats because they they either trust what i'm doing out there or it's it's reported that things are fine or um or they simply don't work it into their schedules but um most artists with whom i work they're they're even the big solo pop performers they they care enough about the sound to have a high level engineer there and then they they come out and they visit at least uh, on a regular basis to make sure it's feeling the way they want it to feel and um uh but but certainly nobody had the attention to detail that Prince had. I mean, it's just a, again, it's like, it's like not having all your gear and you spent no time at base camp and you're looking up at Mount Everest. You're like, well, I don't think I'm going to try and climb that. They just, it's just too big a mountain to climb. Um, Prince always put sound and, and lights at the forefront of his, that was the most important experiential thing for Prince, for his fans was how it sounded and how it looked. And, um, they were equally important. So he, um, I guess he cared on a different level, uh, than other artists. Wow. How, how collaborative was he toward you and others in terms of if you had an idea of trying something, would he listen or implement these? Um, he would, uh, he, there's, there's certain people, uh, I was one of them, uh, that, that felt comfortable enough to tactfully submit ideas. Uh, 
um, with with Prince, I sort of he just gave me, as I said, a lot of a lot of room, a lot of rope. I just did what I do, and I knew how to feel it and feel it through. Um, but if there was a, and he he once said to me, actually very early on in two thousand or two thousand one, I think it was the hits part or, or tour one or, or act one or I don't know what it was the hits maybe I don't. It was around two thousand two thousand one. We were in America, and and he said, you know. I said, I have an idea for an effect on your voice there. And he said, Scotty, effects are all you. That's, you do what you, you do what you want. I have no problem with what you're doing. And I said, great. Mm. So I, I never got, if I wanted to do cool effects and do stuff that I felt was appropriate, um, it just had to go to the, it had to be to the level where it wasn't showing off, where mm. I wasn't calling attention to myself. It was trying to enhance the material. You never want to be bigger than the material. So um, he always left me alone on effects and cool stuff like that. Um, as far as the mix, yeah, he had certain things he wanted in the mix in certain ways that we differed in how I knew it would be picked, perceived by the audience. But I always listened to him and I always tried his way first. Um, even if it was to the point where I didn't think he was hearing very well, there was a time in 2004 where he was quite fatigued and I knew it. And um, one day he came in, he said, there's just, there's just way too much high end. You turn the high end way up. And of course I... I met him with a blink, blink. I thought I was going, I didn't turn any high. That's exactly what it, like it was yesterday. And of course I didn't say that. I said, what, what are you looking for? And he said, just, this is way too bright. Turn the high end down. And so I EQ'd the high end down more and more. Keep going. Band, keep playing. Band kept playing. I kept coming down. He goes right there. Well, I mean, it was basically no high end. It was, a, it sounded like that. And I knew that would have to change by showtime. He just was not hearing properly that day. Mm. So as the show started, I just opened that back up. It would have been murder to do that to people who came to hear and they didn't hear any high end at all. It was um, one of those rare times where I just think he didn't have it that day. And, um, and I decided to step in and help, and help defend what would have been a bad situation. There are other engineers that, you know, that I knew before and after that they did exactly as he told them. And when the consequence would go be that it was bad, he would say, well, why'd you do that? And they say, because you told me to do that. And he said, no, I, you're the engineer. And they go, ah, oh, so you really couldn't win. I never had that issue with him. I think he trusted me. Well, no, he did trust me enough to, to be looking at the bigger picture and try and get it, get the hard work out to the fans who deserve it. So he was very collaborative in that sense. He did it with musicians all the time. I mean, musicians of that caliber always have good ideas. And especially in the jams, when they would prolong these jams and sound check and the rehearsals before the tour, they would come up with really cool lead lines and riffs and, and he would incorporate those. And he would remember them and incorporate them later in the tour. He was really good, mm -hmm. man. He had a, a mind like a steel. He just, he had a great retention, great memory. He has, he had such a good memory for things. Wow. Did his mix over the years that you worked with him, like the, 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 the sound mix, did it change at all sonically or with? Would the different music type change the mix at all? I'm just kind of curious. That's a really good question. We certainly know that's true on his records. Mm -hmm. Because when you go back to the first four albums, even, even I guess, through uh, maybe Purple Rain or so, he it was a pretty natural sound. Actually, his first four records, it was all live instruments. So you got, it was very much a timeless sort of quality. He got into the 90s and things started to change because he started to listen to other people. 
and other artists. So then he would add, he went through his era of big kick drums in the early nineties, the Batman soundtrack, things like that. Um, there was the, an era of big snares in the late eighties that he, he went through that. Um, so he went through different production and then the whole records had a certain sound to them. Sonically, they sounded different record to record. And I don't think that was intentional. I just think he was feeling a different thing at that time. And certainly that carries over to the live venue as well. It was always pretty much, he wanted the same things. So even though the amounts of those things changed, what he wanted was not too much sublo. He hated, he called them woofers. He said, I don't want too much low end. If the drummers, he said, there's nothing worse than going to concerts um, and hearing the drummer hit the kick drum, boom, boom, boom. And the whole building just shuts down for that half a second because of the energy. It's too much low end. Because hmm. he said, you don't want to suck all the air out of the room on the one and the three. And um, that's when I came up with my, that's when I made him laugh quite hard because he was, we were talking about how engineers typically have these giant kick drums and then the snares are really small. And, and he said, um, well, you don't, uh, he said, see engineers, they just, they have these huge kick drums that make, um, make drinks move by themselves when they're <laughs> on a table on the one and the three. And he said, and then he looked at me and I looked at him like, Hey, and then he goes, well, not, not you though. You're, you're better than most. And I said, Oh, that, that's going to look great on my gravestone. <laughs> It'll say here lies Scotty Baldwin. He was better than most. <laughs> and, um, you know, cause that's not the exact quote you're going for, right? You want something a little better than that. But, um, uh, he, um, he, so he wanted, he didn't want too much sub low. He just wanted the kick drum to go, Duh. you know, he didn't want it to make all the rafters shake. Um, he wanted it to be, to be a punctuated beat. He just wanted it to be a lower drum. Um, so he, he always wanted that no matter when, what era I mixed him. Um, he wanted highs to be smooth and he wanted not too much mid. It was, it was almost, mm -hmm. almost always done in a three and he had his keywords. He called it woofers. He called it boxy. He called it airplane hanger. He called <laughs> it, um, uh, um, papery. That was another one of his too papery, or it sounds too much like an airplane hanger. Well, you had to know what to do quickly to get by that, but he, at least it was consistent. So he, from me, at least in the 16 years I covered mixing, um, it was really consistently the same things, even though they were in different amounts, if that answers the question. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you, you, you mentioned some of these keywords he has and you sort of have to learn those and understand what he means by, you know, you say airplaney. Right. Airplane hanger. Airplane yeah. Hanger. I made him, I made him, uh, I made him, um, we were going through a lot of, uh, what's the year he did the rock and roll hall of that had to be 2004, right. Where he was inducted. Mm -hmm. We were rehearsing for the rock and roll hall of fame. Um, the famous now famous concert where he does the great guitar solo and, and throws a guitar into the crowd. And, um, he, um, we were rehearsing for it and we had been going through monitor engineers at a furious pace. And so I was kind of tired of that. And cause I had to sort of start over with a monitor engineer every day. And so what I did is I went and I made up, uh, um, I put all of Prince's descriptions and then I put the frequencies that corresponded with them so that, and I put it on Prince's piano. So when Prince, I didn't put it on the monitor engineer's desk, I put it on Prince's piano. So if Prince wanted to say it's too papery, he would look over and he'd say, turn down 8K, mm. you know, turn down this part of the frequency band, turn down 400, too much airplane hanger, turn down 400, too many woofers, turn down 80 Hertz. You know, so I sort of helped in that way, but he had his, his descriptions were very apt 
he always knew what to bring out in each instrument. He was really good at that. He had, he had good ears for a long time. And, and we've talked about the instruments and things, but what about vocally? Like, what were some of the things that you guys would do with his vocals? Because, I mean, he's got the, you know, the high falsettos and then he'll do, you know, some of the deep types of stuff. Mm. Uh, you know, That's a really good question. Yeah, yeah I, I could speak for a long time on his vocal performance. Um, he was he was a, a master at pitch. He, as I've said, stated quite famously, he, I've never heard him in all 26 years hit a bad note, not flat or sharp. Um, Michael Bland might have heard some or Sonny or somebody who has a better, a little better, uh, been on more shows during a certain area or heard, heard, um, gigs that they were a little tougher in a bullfighting ring in Spain or something where it was a little tougher and it was 112 degrees or something, but I never heard it myself and certainly never mixed them, um, when they were, when he was off, but he, um, he knew how to, he wanted a, he didn't want too much bottom. I think I, I, he, Prince is why I started to figure out what every singer's low note of the show is. So if I think Prince's lowest note in a show, unless I'm incorrect, is in daddy pop. You know, that first mm. line where he sings. Boom, 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 yeah. Boom, yeah. Boom, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I had to figure out if we were doing daddy pop, then I had to figure out what that note was. And then I would just cut off the low and below that. So that way I wasn't, leaving open and leaving exposed areas that we weren't going to use. Or I would go through a set list and find out the lowest note in that set list. And I could kind of cut that off below that note because <clears throat> he didn't want too much boomy low end. He liked tight low end. He liked smooth highs. He, he knew how to turn his, he could tilt his vocal and he could get this dirt. He had a dirty sound. Prince had these clean falsettos that I would always turn up. And my magic number was seven. You know, I remember on Kiss, Prince seeing my notes at, at my, on my computer at the soundboard in 2002, he said, um, actually it was my, no, it was 2001. He saw that. And he said, um, good number. He pointed at my, cause I said, kiss lead vocal up seven DB. And he pointed right at it and he said, that's a good number. And I think he meant the number seven, cause I think he liked it, but he, mm. cause he, he didn't say that's a good amount. He said, that's a good number. So he, he liked uh, falsetto. He always want turn it. He always wanted it turned up. So it was clear and, and intelligible. Um, cause clearly you're, you're singing when you're singing all those high notes, you're singing, it's, you're aspirating the tone. They come out of a, the air and it's an airy tone. So I had to really crank it up, but I had my notes on what songs needed a boost. And, but he had a dirty sound too, that no one talks about that. He would tilt his voice and get this, um, uh, um, what is the song? I love you, but, uh, um, there's a song you, that he, do anymore? yeah, wow. that's it. And he did that when I noticed, yeah, I'm sorry. I just blanked for a second on the piano show in 2016. He used to, that song was particularly beautiful. He would tilt his vocal and get this dirty sound to it. And it was almost gravelly. And he knew when to turn that on and when to turn that off. He had great control of his, of his, um, dirty tone, almost like a distortion on a guitar. He, when he was sort of pleading with someone in a song, he would turn this dirt on and it was really beautiful to watch him be able to go from that to a clean falsetto to a nice low part. He had ultimate control of his instrument. That's for, that's for sure. Wow. What, what, uh, you remember what kind of mic he would use? Well, for for a lot of his career he is a sennheiser early um people recognize that one because it, it looks like a crown almost and it's um 
silver and had some round holes on the side and, and a lot of grill work, uh, chrome grill work, grill work. And then he switched to a Sony uh, in the middle of his career. Um, he also then went to, I put him back on a Sennheiser and then he ended up where I used a, a, a mic called a Heil, uh, a Heil PR35, PR? which is oh, yeah, wow. the 35. Yeah. And the PR35 is a beautiful vocal mic. It costs about 180 bucks. And um, on the piano show at Paisley Park, January 21, 2016, when I put that mic up there, I said, hey, I'm going to use a mic on you that I really like. That I think it'd work well on your voice. I put it up there and he all he had to do was say, check, check one, two. He just said, check one, two. And he turned, he said, Scotty, where's this mic been my whole career? And I said, I said, well, we got it now because he could sing far away from it and still get a great sound. But remember every mic doesn't work for every person. Mm. Um, it, it takes the right vocal and the right amount of energy coming out of it to move a diaphragm or, you know, it's so people always want to know what gear print, what, what gear did Prince play? <laughs> right. What guitar, what strings did he use? What pedals did he use? But it doesn't matter. Prince could make himself sound like, um, it can make it, Prince could make it sound like him on if he, even if he sat in with a band. So it, it's all in the fingers and in the mind. Um, okay, but he, he was PR certainly 35. Yeah. Heil, H-E-I-L, Heil PR 35. It's a really, it's a good mic. I tried it on Wang Li Hong, the artist with whom I work in China. Um, didn't work for him. We went with back to a sure mic, uh, KSM eight. And there's a little bit of tech talk here, but, um, I went to a mic that was more natural with his voice and how much, uh, Lee home likes to come off the mic and then come back in and he's got good mic mm -hmm. technique. So it's easy to, you know, it, it, but we, I always tried to use a mic that was right for that style and that sound at the right. time. It's okay. too, it's too easy to be bathed in that incubus of habit and go back to the same things we know. I mean, and that, again, that stands for relationships. It stands for habits. It stands for everything we do in life. If we get incubated in this habit, we just keep going to those things. There's no challenge left. And I always, Prince, did, he demanded that of all the people in his career, that they be willing to throw out what they know and start over and revisit. Instead of just revisiting what they know is to throw things out and, and challenge themselves to do it a new way. Was there a, a time when he challenged you in this regard? Um, several. Um, one of them was, um, he challenged me. He never, he didn't win that one, but it was going to, he wanted me to not use analog, uh, not use digital console. I told him that there were many reasons that I liked a digital desk and he wanted an old analog console, which are super heavy and they have pops and scratches the same way you would consider vinyl. They, they had, they're problematic. They're expensive to ship. They're not available everywhere. Um, they're un, less reliable. So, um, the fine, the way I finally, he challenged me and, and I, I won that round was he, he said something to me and I said, well, I, but I, I said, Prince, I wouldn't, add, I wouldn't tell you what guitar to play in, in, on your show. I wouldn't tell you what guitar to play. I said, what, I wouldn't tell you what guitar to play on each song of your show. And he, the, the argument disappeared. It's like he dis, it disappeared and he didn't, he didn't say anything to me. Um, and then we ended up doing the piano show on, <clears throat> on the desk of my choice. And thankfully we did because I multi-tracked it and someday that'll be released. That'll be a very special release. Uh, the piano show 2016. But when we went over to um, Australia where all the trouble began and we started not to get along or he started to have problems with me is that he said, see, I think it's that desk. 
you're using that. It's a digital desk. Mm. And I said, no, you know, it's not the desk. It's, it's not the desk. It's, he said, no, it's because there's no electricity going through digital. We need to put electricity through these desks and turn them all the way up. I mean, I think he wanted every fader all the way up. And that's just simply, you don't need to be a physicist to understand that that's not going to, that's not going to work. Um, <clears throat> or it only works, it works for a second and then everything goes, turns off. So, um, it, it, it was sure there were challenges. Um, he challenged my sense of the difference between what I liked and what he liked. Um, I happen to be good at adjusting, recalibrating what I like to what he likes. And then suddenly I like what he likes. And I had to know how to do that. I had to know that the vocals were going to be a little bit hotter than I wanted them, but I knew he wanted them that way. He always wanted the, and he called it the voice. I want the voice higher than, than the mix. And I went, okay. And I just, force myself to get used to it. And then I went, yeah, that sounds right. So it's almost like I press the reset button and then it, I re reset on that moment, uh, at that moment to, to have a new zero level zero, zero tolerance. But he, um, he challenged a lot of us as to what we, he wouldn't let you incubate for long. He, he challenged the convention of the industry, uh, to which, uh, big sexy was alluding earlier. He, challenged you to be individual and think for yourself. And he liked being challenged. He liked when people challenged him. He did. Um, it wouldn't come off that way, but when you when you were in close enough, you knew he liked to hear the argument, even if he didn't let you win, he liked hearing the argument. <laughs> and I think that he, what he got out of it was less sense of satisfaction of being right and more a sense of satisfaction of being, um, uh, being where he was collaborative for the moment. He sort would say, engaged, okay, maybe. yeah, he would, he would listen and then he would say, no, um, we're going to, we're going to do, do it this way. But at least he would listen. I give him that. He, he was a master collaborator. He was, um, but ultimately it always went his way. And if it strayed too far, then he would rein it in. Um, that's why after shows were always my favorite. My favorite concerts were other than the piano show, which felt like an after show in a way. Um, <clears throat> the regular, excuse me, the regular concerts were never my favorite shows. It was always the after parties because we were super tired and it was super smoky back when you could smoke in clubs. And there was a dirty, sexy, late night, gritty, grimy feel to some of those shows. And that's where he started in his career. And a lot of people who rather adroitly point out that the, the most they loved Prince was when he was a punk a sweaty, dirty, mm. sexy, dangerous. You didn't know whether he was going to, you know, mm -hmm. attack you or sing. And, <laughs> and that, that what he had in the, in the early eighties was really late seventies, early eighties was really dirty and punk and dangerous. And that was, um, a lot of people like that. And that's how those after shows felt. That's why I like those the most because they reminded me of where he came from. And I think in a way I might be wrong, way wrong on this, but um, I think they reminded him of what it was like to, to be dirty and do it as he used to say, gorilla style. We would be, mm -hmm. before we would start, he would call me up to where he was sitting and I would leave a soundboard and race up there because I had a million things to do. <clears throat> and he would, all he would do is just give me the come here thing. He would go, come here. And I would lean down and he goes, Scotty, we going to do this gorilla style. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, I got you, man. And that's it. And he wanted, that was his like pep talk. And then I would run back down there, fight my way with a flashlight back to the soundboard. And then he would be on his way right behind me and he would go up and play for another hour and a half. And what he was doing was he wanted to be dangerous. 
because no other artists have done that. They still don't do it. I can't believe that more artists don't do after shows. It kills me inside a little time. Every time I hear of somebody not going and doing an after show. Yeah. I can't think of any artist that I know of that does nope. that. <laughs> well, you got to bring your playback guy first, I guess. That's where it starts because that's the problem is our industry has gone to something where you can't afford to have a bad show, right? Mm. You can't afford to have a bad show. So you, so a lot of it is done with playback or a certain amount of it is done with playback. To be fair, it's everything is supported with playback and time code and things like that. And so it's, it's, um, uh, when you do that, you're guaranteeing a certain amount of success and you have to, cause the fans demand more now, right? You, you can't have a bad show now. You can't afford it. It's all on video. Um, but Prince lived dangerously and that's where certain people like Peggy and Susan in the studio, <clears throat> Roy for sure, Roy Bennett for sure, um, me, uh, Rob Colby, p people that worked with him along the way, we learned how to be dangerous and it made us truly dangerous when we went out there and did our thing with other people because being fearless and effective are two really powerful things. Um, you had mentioned earlier about learning to like the sound that he wanted. And I was curious, does, how does that affect your ears, you know, going forward? Do you change the way you listen to things or was that just, that was appropriate for that particular time with Prince? That's another good question. Um, I think cumulatively, uh, it has changed the way I mix. Prince, Prince has definitely had an effect on the way I mix. Uh, but did it leave off at the last, you know, have I left it calibrated the way it has been f for the last four years? No. Um, what I returned to was this great sense of um, understanding that low end is too often at a concert is just too much. It's just, it ruins the experience. Um, now, if you're at an EDM uh, 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 electronic dance music uh, show or something or a rap concert, you're going to want that low end. You can't, mm -hmm. You can't have a, a dirt, you can't have a, a lack of low end, but I think getting that has really, Prince really curved the way I mixed. And I've essentially brought that same, um, feel to all the, uh, all the artists and the way I mix them. <clears throat> he def Prince definitely, um, uh, he, um, he informed my sensibility about how to construct a mix. He, uh, for example, Lady Gaga, um, she had a mostly gay crowd, mostly male in the beginning, and she had a huge following. So she told me, Gaga said, I just want, Scotty, just make my gay boys dance. I mean, that was, <laughs> that's what she said. And I, and I knew what she meant. And I said, you got it. So I started with low end. I started with, I literally turned off the, the hanging speakers and I got the low end to where it was pumping across the chest. And then I turned up the high end, the speakers, the hanging speakers so that they matched that appropriate, appropriately. And it was it loud. Yeah, it was loud but it's not nice to listen to that old Gaga stuff at a low level. Cause she's talking about just dance and it's going to be okay. You know, just dance. And so that, that informed my sensibility about how to construct a mix. Prince oddly was not, even though he was, a, well, he wasn't really, I don't know. You guys can answer that better than me, whether he was known at primarily as an R and B performer. I think he, cause he crossed John, he was rock, he was pop, he was R and B, but he did not want the mix from the low end up he very much was a top-down mix. He wanted it to be loud and clean and then add the low end until it sounds right. Hmm. And that's the way I've constructed uh, Wang Lee Home, the, the Fray, and Stevie Wonder. I did that same. A lot of, most of the pop acts, even though they were 
uh, air quotes, R&B acts, I still wouldn't run the low end all over a venue. Um, I would have it appropriate to the level it should be. And consequently, Prince helped me not hurt people. Because when they would leave a venue, they wouldn't go, God, my ears are ringing. They hurt. Oh, Normally they just, they leave and they go, wow, it sounded great. I, I don't, I'm not affected by it. You know, you don't, you don't carry that whistle tone for two days after you see a show. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that was, that was directly due to Prince because he, he, he taught me how to get heard loud and clear without hurting anyone. And mm -hmm. um, for somebody that I think was missing some of the mids in his hearing. Um, and the reason I say that is because Prince would sometimes complain about too much sub, you know, too much woofer, too much low end or too much high end. <clears throat> he never claimed that there was too much mids. He rarely did. Mm -hmm. So that's a sure, that's a telltale sign that somebody has lost a little bit of their mids. Maybe they were too close to a drummer for too long, or they were a drummer for too long, or they had their guitar too hot, too loud for too long, too many years. But when you lose mids, the first thing you do is complain there's too much lows, too much highs. So I think he lost a little in the mids and that, that's my personal opinion. And I didn't penalize him for that. I just knew how to respond in concert to the thought that I think, you know, that, that I thought that he was missing a few mids when he would come out and listen. Okay. And we got along, we made it work. Um, I want to jump around just for a second. And you mentioned Lady Gaga and I, I'm sure the last time you were on here and you mentioned her, I was not, I'm not, I was not a Lady Gaga fan, nor was I a hater, just something I never really paid attention to. And I missed that whole wave, but yes. I saw the Stars Born movie. Yes. And I saw that late too, but I, maybe just a couple of months ago. And I love Lady Gaga. I was like, I didn't realize that was her. And I was like, whoa, I was like, whoa, she's dope as fuck. Like, yeah, I, she's, I, she's super talented. Incredible. She's yeah. one of these raw talents that. Um, uh, Prince knew how to, Prince clearly was a, almost the, um, epitome of a raw talent and just, you have it, you have all of it in you. Um, but Prince knew how to rein it in himself and he knew how to rein it in and display it himself. Gaga is more of a raw talent where she needs, I found she needed the people around her to help curate mm. the experience for the crowd Okay, because she was, she's just very she's a, a great singer she's a good performer she um likes to leave it all on the stage she told me once that she didn't she felt like a show was a failure now she didn't say it wasn't as much of a success she used the words i feel like a show is a failure unless i'm bleeding at the end of it mm. um Whoa. she used to so she would all the time she would leave stage and her her nylons or leggings or whatever she had on were torn and her knees would be bleeding and she'd be, she'd do crazy to get, get burned all over her legs by sliding around the stage and pounding on the piano and breaking, almost breaking her finger in Indianapolis. I think one time there, so she would, she always left it on the stage. She didn't leave anything on the table. That's what I really appreciate about her. Um, wow. I haven't had occasion to, to thank her for that, but I, I learned from her that you, you know, you never know to so just leave it all out there, leave it on the don't leave anything on the table. Just lay it all out there. And she was really good at that. And she needs the, she needed the right people to get her career where they could focus it on moving, having forward momentum instead of like a firework momentum in every different direction, right? Because a lot of people do that. They just explode in every direction. They never focus their energy. When you look at a firework, it looks like it goes off just toward you, right? Hmm. But when you see it, 
it's exploding in every different direction. A lot of times I see artists that, that their, their um, trajectory is in every different direction at once because they feel they need to be artistic all the time. You just need to refine it, know where your area of expertise is. Prince taught me that as well, is, is make sure you're doing what you do and make sure you're not doing what you don't do. I mean, I think it was my saying, do what you do, don't do what you don't do. But I certainly learned it from Prince. I mean, that I, to, I, I think I mentioned to you before, there's a reason he never picked up a trumpet. Hmm. There's a reason you never saw Prince play a saxophone because he didn't, he couldn't, or he couldn't at the level that he needed to. So he would bring in other people. He brought in Atlanta Bliss and Eric Leeds. You bring in the right people <clears throat> to do what you can't do. So do what you do. Don't do what you don't do. And um, it gives up other people an opportunity as well. When you don't do what you don't do, you, you have an unmet need. And when you bring in people that meet that need, then you're, you're truly being, you're working in concert with someone else. Literally, you're working, you're creating a concerto with someone else. And I believe that. I believe in Prince was good at making, he wasn't the best at making you feel like you were, had ownership. He certainly did to me. I had to fight for it once in a while. But when he said he was going to release that One Night Alone live box set, first of all, I didn't think he would. Hmm. Um, and my first response to him after he said that word, that line was, well, that's, I said, that's cool. You're going to release that engineering money? <laughs> and, and he uh, said, oh, I'll break you off. And of course, I'm quick to say he didn't. I think I got 25 free box sets oh, and I gave nice. out all but one. I only kept one. Um, Interesting. Uh, but, um, but he, he was, um, you know, it, 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 he was, he was collaborative and he did listen and he, he, um, he was a great teacher. He, uh, I miss it sometimes. I miss him sometimes, but, um. I just try and move forward. I don't dwell a lot. I'm not the type of person that dwells on the past. I move forward and see how I can make it applicable to what I'm doing now. Um, but the, you know, that's the, that's what the, that's the challenge that the, both the estate, I feel for his family. I even feel for um, people having to put his music out or uh, make sure that Paisley Park is done the right way is because you're dealing with someone and they're not there anymore. And not that that's so difficult. We all know, we all make decisions about what to do, but it's just that, when you work with, essentially you work with a ghost, you're working with um, having to do what you think is right. And you get a lot of, you can get some heat for that. And um, Prince didn't dwell. He didn't look behind very much. He moved on to the next thing. When he stopped swearing, he stopped swearing. When he stopped eating meat, he stopped eating meat and he kept it going. So he, um, he, he didn't dwell for very long. Um, okay. Well and I, and I miss people that are fearless like that. I miss that. I want to ask you this. It is one of the top questions people get after they hear your uh, initial show you did with us. Mm -hmm. And it was in regards to, you know, sort of your parting with Prince. And I've, if I'm not mistaken, you had sort of alluded in there. And I think at the time you were like, you know, this is as much as I want to say about this mm -hmm. and things of that nature. But I, every time. Somebody hit me on these message things or something. If I pop on something, I'd be like, what was, what was Scotty talking about? Oh, like, what did well, he mean? Or yeah, why was like, he if, <laughs> evasive about that? Yeah. Yeah. I don't um, know if that's something you're willing to get into, but I sure, have to ask Sure. I'll that. talk about it. I talked about it a little bit on, on another interview, but what, basically what it came down to was I was really excited to be called back <clears throat> in November of 2015. And Prince gave me a lot of, I mean, I had ideas and I would draw 
sketched these ideas and I made a drawing for a PA that I thought we should use in the center of the room at Paisley Park. And I named it the Purple Sphere. You know, I said it can be named called the Purple Sphere and you can project videos onto it. And and I wrote it down and I showed, uh, had it printed on 14, 11 by 17 paper and showed him these ideas and like where I should mix. I could be able to mix anywhere in the venue from this one room in Paisley Park. Um, I could mix any, anybody anywhere in Paisley Park from one certain area and, and um, sadly never got to implement those. But so there was a lot of forward momentum and it was a very, um, he was very excited about that. Um, Kirk was making fast and furious changes to Paisley Park and getting it really did, did a ton of work in a short amount of time to get things ready to go. So when, when things, when I went to Australia and things sort of took a turn and I didn't think he was hearing well, and I didn't think, um, oh man, there were just so many, so much of the time was spent me standing next to him, him at the piano and it was not fun. And we, he was trying to bait me into these arguments and, um, I just wouldn't argue with him. And I just held my iPad in between us. Like I was going to take notes on it. I had my soundboard. I could mix my soundboard from the iPad. And I just held that as a little wonder woman wrist shield, right? So I could deflect some of this stuff. And I just held that out in front of me and he just kept trying to bait me into arguments. And so at one point when I knew we were drawing to, and it was one, one show, the sound would be perfect. And he would grab my arm on the way out and say, don't change anything, just mute it. And I'd say, cool. We'd come in the next day. I'd unmute it. I'd leave it all on. I'd leave everything on. We'd come into the same place the next day, unmute it. He would start playing and say, Ooh, what did you change? And so I knew something was really wrong. I guess in hindsight, it's easy to tell what was wrong, but I didn't see it then. Um, and I want people to know I didn't see it. Had I been able to see it, please believe me, I would have put one hand on his shoulder as I could have and said, we live an hour from the number one addiction treatment facility on the planet. I, and I would have walked away, uh, or if I was asked to leave, I, I still would have done it. I don't, cause I don't care. It's, um, it would have been easy to do. I didn't see it. Um, the other people that were there didn't see it. Um, he was really private and I know what to look for. I've worked with enough artists with enough dependencies to know when to see these telltale sites, uh, a, a sign, excuse me, that they're, that they're, uh, in a, in an abusive situation. I didn't see it. I, I, and I'm always on the lookout for it, but because I didn't see it and I didn't find a reason for him to be angular. That's a good word. I never used that in that context before, but he just, everything was angular. So I was, it wasn't square or rectilinear or circular. And he always had a good feel about him and he, the feel wasn't there. And, um, there was someone else there with us, uh, who did a really good job of trying to make it, make it work right. And, uh, Kirk, Kirk was there and Kirk did everything he could. And, um, he, um, believe me that that was a, I can't speak for, I wouldn't speak for Kirk, but I can say this. Any, anyone who was a part of the situation did everything they could. So when you, when you're exhausted and you have nothing else to do, and Kirk told me, I don't know how, how, how you're putting up with this or how you, I don't know how you can stand this or something like that. And I said, well, I guess I can't. And I um, decided to leave. And the, the last time we spoke, he said, um, we were just sitting at the piano. Kirk had, you know, every day he was smart. Kirk kept disappearing. He would just leave us out there alone. So um, hmm. Prince said, in a moment of quiet, Prince said, well, what's the matter? 
He said, or he said, what's the matter, Scotty? Are we not paying you enough? And I said, no. And he said, well, what's the problem then? And I said, no, man, I meant no, you're not paying me enough. Um, I said, if, if I were standing, if I were grossing $1.6 million a night, I'd, I'd pay my longtime sound guy $25,000 a show. And he was doing two shows a night. And, I, and he said, 50 grand a night for sound. And I said, absolutely. And he went, Psst. and he just shook his head and started to play the piano. And I knew if you can't, you know, and he could have changed my life in four nights. Mm. Right. You, how often do you have a chance to change someone's life in a few nights? And I felt I deserved at that moment, I felt I deserved better. And I've never been afraid of saying no to an artist. It's not that I'm, it's not that I relish that. I just can't, the, the alternative is, is, uh, unacceptable. So I just, I knew right then I said, this is not, this is not going to go the way I think it's going to go. So I decided to, to leave before I was asked to leave. I could feel it coming. And I called, um, his then manager at the time. I think they were on the West coast. I don't know. They weren't very involved at the time, but I called them and I said, book my flight. And I never looked back. And when the, his plane landed in Perth to do that arena show, uh, when it probably came out of the clouds and he got service, my phone just went, and it just lit up like a, uh, a shaving razor. It just kept vibrating. And, and it just said, call, call. He wants to talk to you. Call, call, call. He wants to talk to you. But it was too late. I had been, I had had enough and, and it, I, I felt it was the email I wrote him. I'll, I'll, I'm not afraid to talk about this. I wrote an e him an email. We started talking by email a few weeks later. And I said, if we are friends, I can remember it word for word. If we are friends, as you suggested, because he kept asking me if we were friends in Australia. And I said, if we were friends, as you su kept suggesting, uh, maybe there's a way we can navigate around this. Please feel free to contact me and we can meet to discuss. And he wrote back within two minutes, all in caps. Do you have a number? And I, I think I wrote back, yeah, it's on the bottom of all my emails. And um, he didn't call. I went home and I waited for him to call. He didn't call. And then I think at the end of that day, he then uh, emailed me and said, uh, uh, you can, my manager will take it from here. And so um, it's sort of, it just, even the, even the color of the, the, even the temperature of the relationship had changed. And the last time we talked was, I think uh, it was a week to the day before he passed away. Um, and we were arguing over my last, you know, my final week's payment or something, my, the final amount of money he owed me. And, um, I don't regret it. I mean, he, people will quite often say, well, he, he was gone too soon or we lost him too soon. And I don't agree with that at all. I think people have their narrative arc in life. I think they, they leave when they're supposed to leave. And I believe the earth is, uh, not to get too ethereal here, but I think everything is always in balance. It always finds its equilibrium. And when you deal with a loss of an artist of this magnitude, or you are involved as I was in close proximity to something that burns that bright and you lose that energy, you have something left. And it's how people respond from that loss is I think what makes them and shows their character. How do you respond from a loss? 
that's always the most interesting story to me. How we respond to losses, not whether we win or not, but we all we all have some victories and some defeats. But how do you how do you respond to a defeat? That's and I decided to jump back right back in on what I was doing. I decided to get a hold of Dave Hampton, someone whom I love and treasure as a friend and and colleague, and get engaged and get plugged right back into what I was doing because I felt a creative loss. I didn't have that creativity. You know, I was being very creative at the time and. And um, I was sort of the the silent, the Wizard of Oz partner back there, mixing sound and doing what I wanted for effects on that piano show. And it was really special. And I love that he at least ended his career uh, in, the, in the end at Atlanta, his last concert. He did a show alone. I love that. But um, I felt he followed his narrative arc and he he went out the way he was supposed to. And everything is exactly as it as it's supposed to be. And now it's up to us to uh, try not to make mistakes in the way we unroll things, even the way I talk about them, you know, everyone knows that. I, and I've, I candidly, I've looked up comments on the podcasts and such. Um, and what I like, I, um, been very few critical analysis of things that I say, but, um, uh, critical comments, but what I like in the unification, there's been a, a unified thing about Scotty speaks with about Prince reverentially and respectfully and, uh, because I loved him. He was, he was, a, he was a friend and he was someone I loved. Uh, I relished, uh, I, I loved working with him because when you could work with him, you could work with the best. He was the best in the world at what he did. How many people can claim that? Right. Not very many. And, um, so it, uh, I, on occasion I missed the creativity and I missed the challenge uh, the working environment, the people that are all under duress, the same kind of stress that I was under all the time, he, they were under it too. And that goes from the, that goes from the janitor of Paisley Park to, you know, somebody who designed multi-million dollar shows. And we all felt that same level of pressure to not only succeed, but exceedingly succeed. And um, so that's, a, there's a, a brethren, there's a, a brotherhood, a fellowship, I should say, that I have with Dave Hampton, with Stacia, with, uh, with everyone, we, we all have that shared experience. And just to, you know, just to, I mean, there's a lot there. Just to go back, are you, are you thinking that, I mean, why I was asking you, why do you think, uh, there was a reluctance, uh, to pay you what you felt, felt you were worth? Did he, you know, was that, did that number, did it seem too far out for him or what do you think was the reasons behind this, sort of his pushback? Well, I can tell you what I, I can only postulate a theory on what I, sure. what I think it really is. And what it was, was I left him and I made him pay the check. He invited me to the restaurant, right? Or whatever. I left and then I left him with the check too. So um, I was asking him to pay the check at the restaurant. That's maybe a bad analogy, but it, it worked. Um, so I was the one who ended that part of the relationship, uh, not dramatically. I just said, as a matter of fact, the email that I wrote him, I said, I think I'm doing this for the sake of the show. I think your show would be better if I'm not here. I think you need me to not be here. And I don't know why, because I wasn't, um, I wasn't, uh, contrite. I wasn't acting up. I wasn't, um, in, inflaming him or, or egging him on or trying to get him to argue. I was basically just defending myself all the time. And I just think now in retrospect, when certain information came out as to how he died, then it all sort of fell right into place. And I went, aha, mm. now I have some of the answers that I 
I didn't necessarily need, but now it all kind of makes sense. <clears throat> so hopefully I put a fine enough um, point on it that um, yeah. it, 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 and it's, I just think he didn't want to be stuck basically me getting what I want and then telling him, oh, and by the way, you still have to pay me. But, um, uh, and he, and at the end, uh, he didn't, uh, end up paying me, but the, his, his bank did. They, they saw that I had all my, my, I had my poop in a group, right? I, everything was in order and I had all, all these things in order. And maybe this is talking a little bit, I don't think it's talking too much about the business side of things. People want to hear this too, mm. because it is a mystery. So I, I said, Hey, I, I think he owes me this. And you see when all these, um, when all these, um, invoices were sent in and, and the, without even a, a without even disputing it, they said, yeah, we see that. Okay. And the, 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 the nice one from Bremer who, who paid the bill ultimately, she said, you know what? I, she said, Scotty, I know you were with him a long time. I don't mean to diminish your, <clears throat> your involvement here, but we're, we're treating this as we would a heating bill or a lighting bill or something. It's just, it's a mm. bill that needs to be paid to close things out. And I said, well, thank you for that. So when I got paid, I, as I do a lot of times, I walked outside, I looked at the North Star, uh, which I, I, for some reason, had been locked onto that star and the moon and during my life. I like looking at those and, and, um, and I just kind of said, I looked up, I waved, I said, thanks, man. We're like, that's it. I think we're done. And um, so I knew my job from then on was to talk about him honestly and fairly and he's not here to defend himself, so be as honest as possible and be as fair as possible about my feelings toward things. And I think ultimately, when an artist is as mysterious and cryptic as he is, um, as I've said to you before, your podcasts are really important because in addition to his music, people will canonize him. In the canon of his work, some of these interviews will go in there as, as a supplement to that because it helps understand the man. And so if I can add to that in any way without being disingenuous and just being honest about how I felt, I think it, it helps because he, he was nothing but awesome with, to me. Um, the, the times that we didn't get along or that I felt argumentative with him or that I stood up for things or the time I left rehearsal in a huff and dragged a microphone out and everybody laughed because it got caught in the door. I made some, I made a big scene and I said, I'm out. And I, 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 <laughs> I made a big scene. I'm out. And I, I grabbed my, I wrapped my mic cable. I had a long cable. For some reason I had like a 50 foot cable and I, there were about 25 feet of it was still dragging behind me with my microphone. And then I walked out the door and the door, it didn't shut. It, it didn't stay open long enough. It shut right before the microphone. And then all Rhonda and Renato and the band, all they saw was me jerking on this mic until it jerked out came out. And then I, I texted, I think I called or text. No, I texted Renato later and I said, Hey, did you guys see my microphone? He was like, man, we were laughing our asses off. <laughs> you, you were pulling on this microphone until it. it. So oh, even, man. even the times I left in a huff, it was, um, it was, I learned something from it. He was amazing. He was, um, it's hard to, re you know, you can't replace him. You just have to, you have to do the best you can and you have to love his music and try and pass it on to people that are that are, that's the mountain that they have to climb is that there's the estate and Trevor and, uh, Trevor guy and, and, uh, Sony and, and you know, anybody involved, uh, has to, you, you're basically trying to replenish people's thirst and there's nothing new, but with Prince, there is new things. 
you know, there are new things still to come. So that that's exciting. But otherwise, you're just trying to canonize what you cannot get any more of. You can't get anything more from this source. And certainly none of us are going to see them perform live again. And holograms say what you want about them. I don't think they really cut it. Um, uh, I have an idea uh, that I haven't really, I haven't really fleshed it out fully, but I have a really good idea uh, for the piano show. I think that there's something that, that um, we could do that I could be with, with which I could be involved. That would be really special concerning the piano shows. Um, but um, it, it's an exciting time for, for a lot of people because they get the opportunity to continue to work with his legacy. Um, unfortunately for me, when I worked with him, he had to be alive to work with him, right? That's kind of because I worked in his live sound. Mm -hmm. So, um, so it's, uh, it's more difficult for those of us that were on the, in his bands or behind his consoles. It's, it's different for us, but we can still do what we can. And because I can, you know, me, Michael and big sexy, I can string about six or eight sentences together and kind of bring it home when I need to. Um, it, people that can talk about him and with reverence and, uh, have have meaning behind it. I think it's up to us. The onus, is, the the responsibility is on us to to do that about him as well. For sure. And, and just going back to piano, Mike. I mean, why do you think that uh, that has not been released yet? Oh, I'm sure there's a plan involved. Um, John Gass mixed it. John Gass was mixing the first January 16th, 2016. The January 21st, 2016 piano show. John was mixing that first show while the second show was being performed. So I, it was I think already I've seen that guy in there. Yeah. We, we John is a great engineer. He was uh, he's old school engineer. He's really got great ears and he um mixed huge hits in the uh eighties and nineties. So he um he's uh, really talented and I, I hope his work is the ones they use. They could use my front of house mix. I mean it was a I had a good solid front of house mix, but it's nice to have the audience involved. And I didn't, of course, pump the, I recorded the audience. I recorded the whole thing. I multi-tracked it on my computer, but, and then dumped it into the uh, computer in Studio A and John mixed those. I think the, that, that Trevor Guy and the, and the um, powers that be that they have, they've got a good plan for how they want to unroll things. And it has to do with a very, they, they're on different schedules. They're on schedules that have to do with who owns what material and what companies are taking over for this and that. And they, so fans, I know we get rabid uh, about our ingestion of Prince's material, but if we're patient, um, plus it's just, it's sexy to be patient, right? You just have to be cool. <laughs> just be cool. It'll yeah, come yeah. out. That stuff just, it's, it's, Prince brought that out. I mean, one of, that was one of his architectural tenets was being sexy and being cool. You just, if, if everyone just, I'm sure it'll come out sooner, sooner or later. I'd like to say sooner than later, but, um. Sooner or later, it'll come out and it'll be fantastic when it does. Cause that's a side of him. And that's something that, of which that was a very different show, the January 21st, 2016. Mm -hmm. Those two shows were very different because they were super autobiographical and he didn't even let me know. I probably knew about it. Um, I knew as, mu uh, uh, as much about the show. I knew more than anybody except Prince right before he started playing it. Cause he basically, we went through the whole game plan the night before of both set lists and, um, but I didn't see the element of biography to it. So when he started going through the story and he talked a bunch in between songs interstitially, the the folks that have come to Paisley Park and have seen the piano show that they played segments of which they played segments 
when you're at Paisley Park, they're, they've they've seen the treat. They know already that he does a lot of speaking, and it's very autobiographical, and it's very it's very special. It'll be special when it comes out. I think they're waiting for the right time. Yeah, I, I almost could see it now being a movie, like it's just a you know one of these sort of concert movies, but it would be you know. <clears throat> I can yeah, see it presented that way, almost even split up with other footage or something. But Sure. And they could do interstitials with interviews with uh, the people involved in the show. Certainly, I'd be more than more than willing to to add in. I have a lot of memories from those, uh, the preparation for those shows. It was really a special, it wasn't just a, 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 a regular late night thing where you just jammed for a little bit. Right. That was a very special show. And we're, I think we're all lucky for having been there in the room when it happened. And we'll be uh, equally lucky when it comes out. But, sure, but, the, sure. the, but, it, but they know what they're doing. They just, there's a certain protocol they have to follow and all good things in, you know, in time. Uh, uh, real quick, and I'm, I'm my messy side. You, you also talked about uh, during those last times when you were with Prince and there was uh, a young lady was in there and like you had to speak through her or something. Do you remember that? Yeah. I don't even know. I don't remember who that was. I'm Actually, sure. I, I found that. I, I think I figured out who that is. She's an actress. Uh, yeah. I, I, to this day, I don't know her name. Um, she showed up the last day. I, I, if, and if I knew her name, I probably wouldn't say it, but <clears throat> I I wouldn't want to put her in an uncomfortable that, yeah, position. I'm not going to say her name, but, but I, I have, um, uh, yeah. At the last day, it was, it was actually that after that last, uh, or excuse me, prior to that conversation, uh, that we had right at the piano there before I left is I got called into the room to talk to him. And I said, I said, what do you need? And he said, oh, she'll tell you. And he, he used her as a, as a kind of a go between. And that was, and she told me what basically what he was wanting, what he thought I should do. And I, I just thought, man, we're, we really reached it now. We reached that limit. It's no longer, it's become a game now where, um, where it's not serious anymore. We're not trying to really move ahead and we backed off from the goal. And I think the goal became infuriating me and getting me to react, um, rather than it was to, to really put on a, to, to do the best show possible for the fans. So having, you know, it's a cocktail is what it is. And if you mix certain things together, you get, sometimes it tastes good and sometimes it's just gasoline it's combustible so i knew you take you took um how i felt i needed to stick up for myself and you put two parts of that and then one part of being uh sort of um uh disrespected in a sense of by having to talk to someone through someone else i mean you're you're in michael jackson territory then right talk to elmo <laughs> you need to talk to elmo put that on right? michael <laughs> Oh, we all, everyone knows the Michael Jackson stories. Talk to Elmo. Um, when you get there, you're, you're in a different place. And I just didn't feel like I needed to deal with that. I have more, uh, pride in what I do. And I always, I'm ready for the occasion. So no one can ever accuse me of not being ready to perform and fire. So, um, I think, I think we were backpedaling then and then I knew it was really over. So that precipitated the last conversation and then and then it ended where it was. But I, again, as I said, I'm repeating myself, but I, when he did leave that last show and I knew I was getting on a plane, I watched him walk out. I watched him. He walked past me, didn't say anything to me. Um, and he walked out and 
there were no bad reviews and it sounded amazing. And, uh, I, so I was, it was, I was really confounded as to where he was drawing these, um, inf inferences as to where he was being led. <clears throat> and, um, and I watched him and the last thing I saw was his head and, and he walked out there and I said, well, that's the last time I'm going to see him. And I kind of meant, uh, now that I remember it, I mean, I wouldn't have meant it forever. I just meant I'm not going to be back anytime soon, but I always felt that's not the first time I left. I think it was the third. Um, and so, um, I just figured I'd get a call from Kirk in, in a year and he said, Hey, he's having trouble with sound. Can you come out? And I said, sure. And, um, and that's not to be, but I can, I can serve him in another way, right? I can serve him in another way, which is to serve his memory and be honest. See, people are afraid of the truth. They're afraid of telling the truth or they think it's exposing someone. It's not, um, people, I think any, any people who reach far, sometimes they're difficult with whom to deal because they, they're reaching for something that's beyond what's on the surface. But I certainly felt in that instance that it wasn't creative. He wasn't asking for a creative thing. He was just trying to get over on me. So, um, yeah, having, going through someone to talk to someone who's right next to me, that's, those are, that's like, that's right. elementary school stuff. And I, I wasn't having that. I feel you on that. Um, I, last, I want to talk about, uh, the gentleman, uh, I'm sorry, I don't remember his name. Uh, the guy you're working with currently now when you, you're traveling mm -hmm. to China a lot, what's his name again? Wang his his name is Lee Hong Wang W A N G Lee Hong, yep L E E H O M. Look him up. I mean, stream him uh, for people that are interested in really great songwriting. Um, unfortunately, due to current events, we all of our stuff, all of these shows in China have been postponed, um, and so we are um, so we're on a hiatus right now, and we'll we'll go back to work as soon as um, as soon as things are safe for the world. And but he he. Um, uh, but in China, you put the surname, you'd be Dean Michael over there. So, okay. um, so, and I'm Baldwin Scotty. So, um, he's Wang Li home and he's, um, uh, yeah, he's a great, great artist, great songwriter can do all, can plays, I don't know, 10 or 15 instruments. So he's fully capable. Reminds me a lot of, he would probably be uncomfortable with me saying he reminds me of Prince, but he, he definitely does. He, he knows what he wants. He knows how to get it. He mixes himself. He produces his own records. He, mm. he directs his own videos. He's an actor, a very successful actor. He's acted with his good friend, Jackie Chan in one or two movies. He's really? been in a movie with, with Chris Hemsworth. He's, um, yeah, he's, you look him up and he's very diverse, as diverse as Prince was certainly. What's like the, is there any differences in, uh, you know, music industry over there than it is here in, in America? I've been waiting, Michael, for someone to ask me that for a long time <clears throat> and I had a big smile when you just did. There are huge differences, huge differences. The Chinese market is completely separate. That's why I'm sort of off the map in the U.S. People say, hey, what have you been doing? Because they haven't heard that I've been in China uh, for two years. Um, it's so different. They, they, they don't, I mean, Li Hong has a billion fans, literally. Wow. A billion fans. So as I've joked before, when Beyonce goes to sleep on her perfume sheets, she dreams those three little bubbles. And then the big bubble that she dreams is, I hope I can be as popular as Wang Li Home someday. Because the, these Chinese artists have literally hundreds of millions of fans, not a hundred million. They, you know, they, they, Li Home has a huge following and he's, um, everything's different. They have the golden melody awards instead of the Grammys. 
They have every, all the award ceremonies are different. And the crowds, the biggest thing to me was mixing the, the crowds cheer. So we regularly play stadiums. They're on the low end, they're 50,000 on the high end, they're 80,000. Mm -hmm. wow. So every week, every show is 50 to 80,000 people. And I've done that for two years. Now who does a two year show, <laughs> a two year tour every week in stadiums for two years, not many acts. So, wow. um, uh, but the crowd cheers at the end of a song, they cheer really heavily for about two seconds and then they stop mm. and it's complete silence in the stadium, which is really weird. Cause if you ever wanted to hook up with your friend and you didn't know where they were after the crowd, you could just go Ricky <laughs> and you, I'm over here. But because Americans, people in the West, we all go, Woo! we just all keep, right. keep, keep screaming woo. And we keep clapping, but in China and in, in all, almost all of Asia, but China for sure, they cheer for what you've just done. And then they're waiting for you to present the next thing. It's mm. very different. So I had to actually get used to that. It was, it was uncomfortable at first and it felt like these weird pauses, but they're used to it. And then I asked Lee home, Hey, is there anything you want me to do to try and help these things connect? And he said, yeah, absolutely. You know, see, he's, he's very uh, collaborative as well. And so we, we did a few little things. I added a, there's a song, I added a long reverb to the end of the song. So it kind of covered up after the crowd was cheering and, and we'd in the playback in the video, they added a couple of things, you know, pr early in the next song. So that things took over, you're trying to hand it off and make it kind of seamless. Um, they, they take in music. They, to my surprise, they don't listen to it differently. It's not like they say, um, uh, oh, we, we like way more high end here. We like a lot more low end. There's nothing like that. Um, I've, I've educated myself and had to do a lot of sleuthing to find out how the Asian market listens to music differently. And it was all it did is benefit me because now I know my audience better. But, um, I think Lee Home wanted my sensibilities. He picked me specifically because I'm an American engineer, uh, from the, you know, from the West that mixes a certain way. And he wanted that feel to his show hmm. because, uh, uh, typically Asian engineers mixed a little bit differently. And Lee Home is an American guy. After all, he was born in Rochester, New York. So oh, wow. he spent the early part of his life in, in America. Um, and so, um, well, uh, well, let me ask you this. Is there an, is there any sort of language barrier between you and any rest of the crew or, or different texts or things of that nature? Uh, yes, there is, but we get over it by having, uh, there's always a translator nearby okay. the playback engineer the person that does playback for the for the uh, tour um in asia it, 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 they position themselves he sits out at front of house so he's not on stage with the band he's at mm -hmm. front of house with me and he's a great really super talented guy named madrick tan uh he's from singapore so he's a citizen of singapore and he um he speaks uh, he went to berkeley he's a graduate of berkeley college of music so he he speaks you know perfect english he speaks mandarin he speaks um um, he, he speaks enough, I think he speaks five languages. So he, wow. I never have trouble with Mandarin, uh, the show director, all the talk is going on is all in, in Mandarin. Um, and so when they're giving instructions and Lee Holmes sings in, in Chinese, in Mandarin. So, uh, during the show I had to learn about, I said, well, what's this song about? So I translated all the lyrics, had them translated. And then I, because I wanted to read the English interpretation, the sensibility, is this a love song? Is it aching? Is he singing about his car? Is he singing about something powerful? Is it, you know, I needed to inform my sensibility about how it, what the song content was so that I could, it could inform the way I mixed. 
And having done that, once I got it down, it wasn't that long. But the language isn't really a barrier because um, I I try and learn a little bit of um, enough Mandarin to get by. And as long as people, I think, anywhere in the world, as long as they feel like you're trying, the thing I didn't want to do is walk in there and say, okay, does anyone speak English? <laughs> That's not what you want to hear. Um, you want to hear, Ni hao, shi shi. <laughs> So I can, I can say certain things and I, I know I'm getting my point across. Um, my system engineer who sets up all the speakers all over the stadium, he speaks very little English, but we, I, we can get things done and we, we, we're communicating. It's all about communication after all. It's not about language, it's about communication. Wow. I, I'm looking him up as you speak, man. This guy is actually pretty huge. I mean, in terms of uh, the magnitude of his stuff, they basically the king of Chinese pop. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like being called, he would bristle at it, I'm sure, but it's like being called Michael Jackson. You're, you're yeah. the king of Chinese music. And um, um, I've met some really great um, acts over there that uh, David Tao and J.J. Lin and Ah Lin and... Jackie Chung, his name is not Jackie as, as, uh, not to be confused with Jackie Chan, but there, there are all these artists that are as big as any artist and every artist we have in America. It's just that the markets are so separate that even American record companies don't know who these people are. Wow. And they have their whole Chinese, you know, industry over there in Tai uh, Taiwanese and, and Malaysian. It's just a whole different culture. The drummer is a guy named Tony Parker, probably pound for pound, the best drummer I've ever heard. And you know who I've been around. Okay. Yeah. Tony Parker. He's, he's incredible. I'll send you a clip. I'll, I'll DM you with a clip, um, of Tony and he's an American guy. Um, grew up in America, uh, church background. And he's lived in Malaysia for, I don't think Tony's been home in nine or 10 years. He just makes his whole living over there as this, Hmm. as a session player and as a live player. So there's, there's an industry of musicians like his, the as most as badass as American musicians think they are, um, there's an awakening that happens <clears throat> when you get outside the U.S. and Europe and those markets like that. When you go to Malaysia, when you go to China, when you go to Taiwan, you meet. I, they're the most incredible. I've met some of the most incredible musicians I've ever heard, and wow. and they all read and they all know theory and they all have feel and they can all read charts and it's a different competition over there. So they have to just, they can't just operate on feel because mm. they're going for there are more people, there's less jobs. So they're, they're trying to go for the same thing. So you have to, your aptitude has to be way higher. I would have loved to hear Prince with Lee Holmes band. That would have been something because really? these are four bad boys. Oh yeah. It's incredible. <laughs> Um, maybe I'll send you a clip of them jamming that has no copyrights to it that you can um, use for the end of the show, perhaps. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I see he has an extensive filmography. <laughs> I guess it's not, it's no Yeah. What's joke. the song? He did a, what was it called? Black Hat or Black, Black Jack, Black Hat Black or Hat. Black Jack? Black, Black Hat. Hat. Mm-hmm. That's with Chris Helmsworth. And then he did. Um, oh, this was the, it was like a tech hacker type yep, movie. I yeah. saw that movie. Okay. Yep. All right. So you know Lee Holmes work well. He's a great guy and he's really great. And he, um, I hope no one um, who crosses, who comes across Lee Holmes uh, mistakes his kindness as weakness. He's one of the kindest fellows, kindest people I've ever met. And um, he's really respectful and he's kind and he's super knowledgeable. And I always find that 
the more knowledgeable one is at their craft and the more educated they are at their craft, the more confidence they have. And the more confidence they have, usually the nicer they are. If you're really competent and you have this high level of competence, you tend to be a little more relaxed because you, your gains come in, you know, they're, they're incremental gains and you keep them once you gain them. So it's, it's, um, he's just a, a great guy. And I, I look forward to, I just, a, there's a band, uh, a WeChat going around with the band. I'm considered band. So it's the four guys, Mandrick, who does playback myself and Lee home. And we, we just had a band chat this morning. Hey, love all you guys miss you guys. There's a lot of that going around. We, there's a real loving atmosphere and he treats his Lee home treats his people really super well. I'm, I'm really, um, and I'm not saying it because I'm working with him now. Because technically right now I'm not, we're, we're going to start again in the future, but it's, it's, um, hopefully I've gotten better over my career at choosing artists that really that want to have a great experience. And Madonna taught me, she saw me frustrated once and she, she said, Scotty, enjoy the process. <laughs> and it sort of gave me pause. She just said, enjoy the process, meaning go through the hard time because the good time's coming. Just enjoy it all. Don't just try to look for the high time. So, um, I took that from her. She was a teacher as well. So there's, there's things to be taught from everyone out there. Everyone has, I learn when I come on your show, (laughs) um, you know, because your, your preparation, what you and big sexy do in your, your preparation. I listen to the other interviews you do and you, you prepare and you know how to take a question and form and move it off of that subject. And you know how to morph and move with, especially the guests like me who can get long winded, you know how to go somewhere and then bring it back. And I, so I learned by listening to you, how you can bring it back. I appreciate that. Wow. All right. feel like I'm doing something now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, big sexy, man, before we get out of here, uh, I know you got something you probably want to uh, jump in with this here. Yeah. A couple things real quick. Uh, first off, I'm buying Lee home. I went to his Facebook. The guy has a shade under 3.6 million likes on his page so clearly he's out there doing the work yeah and he doesn't even and and facebook isn't even popular in china so i don't know that's uh i think weibo is a a, weibo is kind of the google of china w w e i b o i had to close my eyes on that one w e i b o weibo weibo is like google so if you go to weibo.com then you can see like you know the the amount of followers and the amount of fans any put it this way any Typically, I will be careful here too. Typically, any Asian American that you meet, if you meet a Chinese American or, or a Chinese person that's going to school or something, and you say, oh, hey, by the way, are you a f- do you know who Wang Li Hong is? Oh, I love Wang Li Hong. He's known everywhere, but just not to uh, Americans. Um, he's, it's, it's that way in, in, it's that way. That's how separated the East and the West are from their music businesses. Wow. Now, going back to your training and education, and I've said many times that if I could do what you do, I would have never gone to law school because I, I just love what you do. Now, how does one go from a, being the drum tech, and if I'm not mistaken, please correct me if I'm wrong, when you're the drum tech, you're on stage right behind the drummer, correct? Yeah, yes, sir. And now, as front of the house guy, you're out in the best position to hear at the mixing board out in the, out in the crowd, correct? Yes, sir. How do you go 
from one to the other, especially at the highest levels that you're doing it at. I think, as I say, I don't think engineering, I, I didn't really choose engineering. It sort of chose me. And I mean that I, I, um, Prince could tell I was always paying attention and I was up to the task and I was always making mental notes on things, if not physical notes. <clears throat> Before I actually learned to do sound, Prince would put me way out in these stadium shows in 90, 91, 92, I would be 93, especially I would be in the middle of the stadium crowds at front of house with a headset on telling the sound engineers when the next solo was coming. So he had me sort of trained to mix because he trusted that I knew the material really well. Um, so I was learning to be a sound engineer before I was a sound engineer. And then I thought, well, let me just kind of pick it up. And I, fortunately I had the right mentor at the time and said, Hey, you step in and just do some, come on, we're in a bar, you know, we're, you just step in and mix. What would you do? And I did it. And I quickly found if I hadn't had the aptitude, I wouldn't have lasted. But, um, Sheila came in, Sheila E came in, heard me mixing. And she said, Scotty, I'm taking you on the road. That's it. And I think a few weeks later I left and I hadn't looked back. I never went back to drum teching. Um, but it's a natural progression. It's not, it's not as if I'm going from auto repair to farming, right? <laughs> I went, I went from sitting behind Michael Bland to, to actually being responsible to, for, for mixing them. So, um, it was a pretty natural progression and I, you know, I'm not even sure you guys to be like a lot of people. I have the same feelings about, I, I don't know if I'm, how long I want to engineer. I'm in my early fifties now. I don't want to do this when I'm 60. I want to be able to hear when I'm 70. Um, hmm. and, and then what do you do when you basically went to college at Paisley park? What, what, what do you do when you traded, you know, I, I didn't finish college. What do I do when I what do I do when I traded that out for the experience of being on the road with Prince and then, and then done this for 30 plus years. So it's, it's, it's like any of us, we have to reinvent ourselves. It's not like the days where you'd put in 44 years at a manufacturing company or something. First of all, nobody manufactures anything anymore here. And then secondly, we change jobs many times in our, in our careers and we can have a podcast and do another job on the side too. Right. Mm -hmm. And Michael, you know, you talk about, work it like a job. You, you want it. We want to be wide. It's good to be wide. It's good to have a, a, a skill set that's wide. And Dave Hampton and I talk about it every single morning when we do our catch up call every morning at 1030, uh, my time AM Dave calls every morning, like clockwork. And we talk, uh, about what we're going to do. What's the next thing? What should we speak? Do people want to engage? Do they want to come and hear us talk about things? I don't want to just go around it's getting off the subject of your question. Certainly I'll bring it back to that, but um, I don't want to just go around and, and reciting Prince anecdotes forever because that's not helpful. It's not useful. It's cute and it's fun and it's like candy, but it's not going to make you, it won't make you fat. You're not going to get any, any real anything out of it except a story. I, I always hope that there's something behind it that tells you more about the person or the experience or even my experience of it and how I work. Um, well, there's and, so much more to you too. Like, you know, I, I'd be just as fascinated to hear how you sort of juggle doing these things you mentioned. And we didn't even get into, you know, you being a father and you're raising a family and, you know, the relationships and how that, that works too. I mean, that's, that's the work work. <laughs> that is the work work. And we're all, we're all doing it. So for me, big sexy, moving from drum tech to, to front of house, um, 
I sometimes think, and this is maybe me just not realizing or kind of forgetting that we're doing an interview is just feels like we're talking and you have that skill as well, Michael, where you make it so conversational and it could go on for probably shorter than I'm making it. But, um, is that we, we, um, we, we all have that thing, right? There's a thing inside of us that says, am I doing what I should be doing? Or maybe I should just do something different. And then we've never lived in a better time to be able to reinvent. Reinvention is easy, but it's not. We have to take what we are and build something different or go for something different. And I think it's, as in, as it is in me, I think it is in all of us, it's, it's having the confidence enough to say, you know, I'm just not going to do this anymore. I've done what I'm going to do. And I'm known for what I've known, been known for, and I'm going to do something else. Now, mm-hmm. as I've said before, I said it on the, the first time we spoke, Michael, is for if there's a hundred people that have worked with Prince, about 97 of them, when they die, written in their obit is going to say, and she worked with, and he worked with Prince for six years on the, 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 or and she worked with Prince on this tour. She was a dancer on this tour. Or it's going to involve Prince. Prince is not the highlight of my life. Prince is mm-hmm. a part of it, but this is my experience. And he was part of it. And he was super responsible for me being becoming what I was and having the, oh, I don't know, I guess the deliverable excellence and the attention to detail that I have. And, uh, and I thank him for that. But ultimately, we all want to make our own statement in life. And we have to balance that as fathers, as friends, as, as colleagues, as, um, you know, every different relationship we can have in life, we want, just want balance. I, I talk about that word all the time. It seems to be clinking around in my head all the time, but I love the word balance. It's hard to find. And it's something that we want in ourselves and want to teach our children is to just keep things balanced. Even as a, even if, even as a fan of Prince who's passed and departed now, we have to find the balance between still liking him, but you're not hearing anything new or you're hearing something come out that's already been out. And you have to kind of keep that balance. And over time, it sort of fades and you feel like it's going to, you're going to just sort of, it's going to fade away a little bit and there's nothing new coming out. So there's nothing over which to get excited. And those things creep up in all of us. We have those feelings and we don't talk about them a lot, but how do you stay current and how do you stay? One of the best things about Prince is that he talked about things that were happening at the time. He told us about ourselves, as I stated earlier. So what do you, what would Prince think of a virus or what would Prince think of a, um, a shooting that happened or what would Prince think of? We kind of can guess, but we don't have him here to make those responses. So that's the part that hurts is that we miss, I miss anyway, that he's not able to tell us about who we are because I think that's what he did best. All right. Balance. Strive for that. That's, that's it. balance and discipline. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things. Um, man, I, I love talking with you because we open up so many different, you know, avenues, discussion and things to go down. And this could easily turn into a four hour conversation. I'm going to have the discipline to say that it's not going to do that. Yeah. But- and I, I apologize. I apologize to listeners who are, oh, no. who feel like I'm somewhat non sequitur and I sort of, we, you know, I wean my way down these paths, but um, I think the, that's the beauty of long form conversation is that it, it can go, you know, we're not trying to hit a post and hit a mark. We're just letting it go. And I certainly appreciate your, um, your, the time that you've let me share with people. Oh no, it's great. It's, it's it's always entertaining and stimulating. So that's that's my main thing. I'm learning something 
Uh, so we love it. Um, listen, Scotty, uh, as always, open door anytime. I think we mentioned it before we record, but we need to go ahead and lock in that Scotty, Dave, Oh, that would be sexy, good Mike. You know, we'll 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 have that one. Uh, we can really sit down and chop it up. Um, so, for those who would love to follow you on social media, where can they find you? It's it's all pretty much Scotty Baldwin. Um, it's uh, Instagram is Scotty Baldwin S E O T T I E Scotty Baldwin, and uh, Twitter is at Scotty Baldwin. Those are the two big ones, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And then what's well, what's the one you you mentioned? You have a presence on the the uh, the Chinese. Uh, Oh, WeChat. WeChat is just another, um, it's another way of, um, uh, it's another messaging uh, format for, that they use over in China. But, but they're all, you know, that, that would essentially be messaging or just text messaging for in the okay. U.S. here. So, but it's, it's, yeah, it's, I'm well, pretty much Scotty like Baldwin. Equivalent to Facebook over there, you call it something else. Oh, Weibo. Weibo. We, yeah. And if you go on Weibo, you'll, you'll be on there for 11 seconds because you're going to go, oh, there's nothing here for me because everything's in Mandarin. Hey. Um, so you'll see it and you'll go, Ugh. let me get um, 0.1% of those billion people to listen to the podcast. I'll be straight. <laughs> I'll copy and paste some work like a job in mentoring. <laughs> in the URL. That's what Google translates for it. We love there that. You go. There you go. All right. Big sexy. Where can they find you online, sir? Let's see the uh, usual suspects. Facebook, Mark Wiggins, Twitter, WSE Mark. And Instagram, Mark Wiggins, too. All right. And you can always find us on uh, Facebook. Just look up Podcast Juice, Twitter, Podcast Juice, of course, uh, Instagram. And um, any podcast catcher out there, we're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Definitely check us out there. And also, we have to salute, clap our hands. Stand up and say thank you. Yes, to all of our Patreon supporters. We love you guys. Thank you so much. Uh, you're actually going to hear this before everybody does. We'll let you guys hear that first. Um, but if you don't know what I'm talking about, please go to the website. You can join our Patreon and join uh, and help support the show. And we also have exclusive shows over there. Of course, we have our take, or excuse me, top two uh, podcast that sits over there. And it's a Prince related show. With that, my name is Michael Dean and. Work it like a job. We'll see you next time. Peace.